Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's January 2023, and as usual, you're struggling to maintain that New Year health kick you promised to have in the coldest, darkest month of the year. We're here to get you through it with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson, and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Hello, and thank you very much for that lovely introduction. Excited to get into it. We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash double reel, where we list all the films we've discussed in the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 33. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2023, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and watch a great film instead. For this episode, it's the highly rated but dark and disturbing action thriller, Green Room. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month features Mel Gibson's thrilling but somewhat overlooked historical action epic, Apocalypto. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 33, we recount the famous story of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Paul Verhoeven's lost historical blockbuster, Crusade. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake, Hate Watch. This month, we discuss Death Race, the sanitised and redundant reboot of the Roger Corman exploitation classic Death Race 2000. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. For episode 33, we're bringing the second annual Double Reel Awards for excellence and otherwise in the films of 2022. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. Alan gets in touch regarding uh, Birdman, which we featured on our last episode. He said, did you notice the big slab of Stella Artois on top of Keaton's uh, theatre dressing room wardrobe? I think it was visibly when he gets back to the dressing room after locking himself out on the street. I thought, that's his problem right there. I think that may have been paid product placement by the beer company. Does, uh, he doesn't punch enough women for that to be Stella. Oh, yeah, yeah I have to, I'll have to have a word about that. <laughs> On our classic green room, Tony, friend of the pod, says, What a movie, Nazi punks, fuck off. Indeed, Tony, indeed. Kay said, Those dogs don't play. Scott says, I've seen it twice now and honestly don't get the hype. Ahead of the Double Reel Awards we're presenting on Reel 2, Jan says, My best film of the year, probably Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, although The Samaritan and the Netflix Pinocchio were surprisingly good as well. Worst and most disappointing films of the year would be the new Jurassic World and the new Scream film. On our one that got away, Paul Verhoeven's Crusade. Chris says, wow, what could have been? Francis says, I remember reading about this back in the day, missed opportunity. And Michael says, I'd love to see the script they did for that, which is available online and we'll post a link to it in our socials. On our hidden gem, Apocalypto, uh, Simon says, fantastic film, visceral, wild and exciting. Nicholas says, a bloody masterpiece. I see what you did there, Nicholas. Kev yeah. says, uh, a brilliant antagonist, the bad guy in the movie. Uh, George says, fantastic, but his best is still We Were Soldiers. It's a good film, George, but while Mel Gibson's in it, he didn't direct it. So maybe you can have that as his best film, and uh, Apocalypto was the best film he directed. On our remake, Hate Watch Death Race, Ryan says, It's fun if you don't take it too seriously. It's just a muscle car, dirty race movie. Uh, Bradley and Charlie agree. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. 
Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts, which you might like to check out. The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus Scrooge McMusk, is out now. That little piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's get into this month's episode. Um, you'll, you'll have noticed, uh, regular listeners, that sometimes we have a bit of a theme to our episodes, but no real theme to this one. I just thought that we should try and have kind of quite exciting, gripping sort of action films and thrillers and stuff for all our features, just to kind of blow out the cobwebs and get us through January, which can be a bit of a dark and dreary month. So that's why we're doing all kind of quite, you know, violent, kind of visceral, kind of uh, thrilling sort of chase type films. Um, so, James, first of all, uh, any news caught your eye? Um... Well, the Golden Globes completely passed me by. I just woke up one morning and it was like, oh yeah, these are the winners of the Golden Globes. And I was just didn't see any of the nominees. Yeah, there didn't wasn't see much any fanfare, of the, was there? Nobody gives a fuck about it anymore because they're a bunch of racists. But um, yeah, that completely passed me by. That would probably be the biggest film news I saw very late. Uh, for me, I don't know about you, how you feel about the Golden yeah. Globes now that we realise they're all racists. But, no, what, um, yeah, I mean, no one pays too much attention to it, really, except to say, I wonder if the I wonder if the Oscars are going to give the same awards to the same people kind of thing, I think is the I only mean, thing yeah. people discuss about that. So, best best drama was The Fablemans, best musical or comedy, or like as I like to call it, best western or, or horror, um, <laughs> is The Banshees of Ina Sharon. Um and it's a weird one because that's really hard to pick out for because the, the the Oscars doesn't split the split into two genres like that. Um, best animated feature was Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Austin Butler won for Elvis. Um, so Michelle Yeoh won Best Actress in a Comedy, and people are thinking she's going to win the main Best Actress Oscar. But other than that, I mean, it gives you an idea who which films got some momentum. It seems like. Uh, Everything everywhere all at once has, has got some love and about and the Fablemans, but like like you say, no one really gives a shit. It's really just a dress rehearsal for the Oscars. So now the discussion is really is Spielberg going to win like he did on the Globes? That that sort of that sort of thing. I mean, you say that, but did Coda win any of the Golden Globes? Because I swear the Oscars are nothing like the Globes when it comes to like matching up awards. Because the Oscars seem to throw out some real curveballs, whereas the Globes just nominate all the big like. Yeah, yeah films basically. Uh, for the Globes, Coda was nominated but didn't win. You often have a little dark horse coming through like that. I don't know if you've noticed that there's a lot of um, promotion uh, about this uh, indie film that uh, that Andrea Riseborough is in at the moment. Yes, what is that? It's called Two. It's I'm trying to remember the name. It's it's called Two Something Two uh, uh, Two Nikki or something like that or. To Leslie, to Leslie, and it's a tiny film. It's a really small indie film, which hasn't been seen by many people, but it's got all the Hollywood A-listers saying this is the best film and everyone should watch it and everyone should nominate it for awards. And there's a little bit of a like a, an outside chance that it might pick up some Oscar nominations, and it wasn't even mentioned in the Globes at all. Um, and I think what that is is that Andrea Riseborough's agents have kind of said, look, why don't we show this film to all the other people that we have on our books and see if they like them? And they've all gone, wow, this is a great film. Why is no one talking about this? And it's a little bit of a concerted campaign. It's a little bit of, hey, why don't we, you know, why don't we, you know, mention a film we really like? 
But sometimes you get a film that comes through, you know, sometimes people have really big promotion campaigns for their films and it can kind of change the awards. But yeah, you're right. I think I think the, the Globes are losing their elements, aren't they? Yeah. Um... Any other news uh, you picked up? No, so I imagine you've got a couple. Yeah, I always try and make it a couple down. You're, I mean, I, I suppose you've seen the news about Jeremy Renner. Oh, fuck, yeah. Was that this month? I thought it was... The... No, well, it's... Oh, I suppose it's, it's between it's, the podcast. It's, it's, yeah. it, it's since our last... Um, right. Since our last uh, broadcast, as it were. Yeah, he had that horrible snowplow action. I think he was just got out of hospital a couple of days ago. There's been all sorts of rumours. People rumoured, oh, he's, you know, he's you know he's about to be taken off life support. You know, it's, it's not looking no, good. No, or... he was on his Instagram. Yeah, yeah. And, but there were the rumours that he's had an amputation. You know, the, the internet goes nuts. But, I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty bad accident. Um, I don't know how the fuck it happened because he, was, he got ran over by his own snowplow. And it it sounds to me like what happened to um, Anton Yelchin, uh, who we'll be discussing in Green Room later, yeah. where th- the last thing you want to do is trust the braking systems of an American-built motor vehicle, because they huh. just they just you can't fucking trust them. He's he's got out of his out of his thing, and it's, the brakes are supposed to be on, and the next thing you know, it's it's rolling over you. Um, so yeah, it's horrible, and obviously get well soon, Jeremy Renner. That's a pretty horrendous. Given, especially given that all he was doing was trying to clear the roads for his neighbours, he was trying to help people, and and, yeah. and then he got getting hurt for it, which is a shame. Um, other stuff that's happened: uh, Gina Lola Brigida died. Um, I'd be amazed if you'd even heard of her, mate. She was an Italian actress and a contemporary and slight rival of Sophia Loren. Right. Okay. She had a similar career to Sophia Loren in that she was a big star in Italy and then had some international success as well. But she's not quite as famous as Sophia Loren. She died age 95. Um, uh, much beloved in Italy and left some great films behind her. So uh, R.I.P. Gina Lola Bridgeter. Uh Fun fact about, about her. The the, Lo- the Lolo Rosso brand of salad lettuce is named after her. Okay. So. I don't know what that is. It's a it's a It's a brand of lettuce. I mean, it's not the most glamorous thing you could name after somebody, but there you go. That's her legacy. Um, <laughs> other bits and bobs of, of, of news. Aaron Taylor Johnson recently emerged as the bookie's favourite to be the next James Bond. I saw that, and I don't know how I feel about it. You, you know what? A lot of people didn't know what to feel when Daniel Craig got the um, uh, got the nod for Bond, and I think it's a case of if if they have if he has screen tested really really well, um, why you know why not? I mean, he does he does give off this real kind of violent bastard vibe in a lot of his films, and he has been in some big movies. So you know, maybe I think the problem a lot of people talking about that um, Reggie Jean Page, but he's only done telly, and it's not the same. And he did the Grey Man last year and didn't particularly stand out. And I think sometimes you go film and TV are two different things, and carrying a whole movie. Um, and there's still talk of Henry Cavillo because obviously he's just freed up from two other franchises, so it's not beyond the realms that he could get it as well. But yeah. there's going to be a lot of kind of rumor and chat, and you, you never know what actually um, comes out. I still think they should just do a couple Idris Elba Bond films where it's just an older James Bond whose like body's been battered and bruised, and I think that's what they should do for a bit, and then see what they can do. See, see who see who emerges as the as the yeah. young Bond. Hey, I wouldn't be averse to it. Uh, I mean, I would have much preferred to see Idris Elba get the role when he was about 40, but you can't always get what you want. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be averse to that. After Skyfall, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or just, you know, the, you could say in a parallel universe how it could pan out. Um, the an, an interesting one, this is... Uh, there, there, there'll, be, there'll be counterpoints to this story, but the cinema chain View said 
they believe that the, 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 the downturn in box office revenue that's seen the past couple of years is mainly down to what they call supply issues. And what they say is you used to get 92 major releases shown in the big blockbusters in a year pre-pandemic, yeah? yeah. And last year it was 62. Right. And box office revenue was down almost exactly a third. So it's almost like they're saying, if we get more films out, we'll make more money at the box office. Um, and also what was interesting is Netflix have come out and said they realise they've left money on the table, not giving Glass Onion a proper cinema release. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting because they're the ones who kind of like, they're the only people who spend $200 million on a film and then only release it for streaming. Um, so if they're interested in showing films theatrically, then you know we might see you know some interesting stuff happen. Um, but it's still a bit of a delicate time. But there are people hoping that this year might get a bit better because there are going to be more films released this year. So fingers crossed. Um, I thought it'd be interesting, mate, to look at uh, what films are coming out uh, this year. Look ahead. I mean, are, are any sort of new films that are, that, that are out this year kind of catching your eye already? Um. Not really. I've I've not seen any that have really drawn my attention. That to be honest, the, the hype is all with the TV shows at the moment. If I'm honest, like yeah, Mandalorian season three, The Last of Us has just come out. But films, I don't see anything that really goes. Oh yeah, that'll be really really good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean I'm not necessarily sure about really really good with all of these, but there's some notable films coming out this year, and how they how they turn out, we'll just have to see. Uh, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse is coming out, so that's the sequel to the animated Into the Spider Verse. Spider Man, okay. which uh, I really enjoyed the first one, um, but I think with Marvel films, you know, there's no guarantee if you enjoy the last one that you'll definitely enjoy the next one. Lately, is it the same? Is it Phil Lord and Christopher Miller? Is that the names? Yeah, not sure is it actually. Phil Miller or Christopher Lord? Yeah, yeah, Never Miller and different. Miller and Lord. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it would be good if it was them uh, because they did such a good job of the last one. Um, yeah. No, it's not. Although they uh, they're involved in the screenplay. Uh. So we'll see. This is this will be the second time that uh, that Disney have decided uh, to to not let Phil Lord and Chris Miller direct the movie. Uh, the last one was Solo, and we know how that turned out. That film was shit, wasn't it? It was, yeah. just, it was just boring. Yeah. There's also Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which I just think is going to be a car crash. Yeah. No, thank you. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Once upon car a time, crash. that once upon a time that would be a home banker. But when you look and see what's happened with the other Marvel films lately. Um, Oppenheimer, I am more excited about. Is it, I thought that was twenty twenty four. No, this year, that, this July. Oh right, okay. I mean, I remember when we talked about it. That it said, "Oh, there's rumours that it's going to be all black and white, apart from a few scenes," and and you were uncomfortable with that. And I think Christopher Nolan has been a bit naughty again. I think he is so paranoid about too much detail coming out about his films before they come out that he's probably letting rumours or planting rumours that completely misdirect people about what's going on. But there's yeah. been a recent trailer where it's mostly in colour with some black and white sequences. You know when you know when you're doing a period film and they go, do it in black and white because it's being shown in newsreel or do you know what I mean? They sometimes do it for effect in a couple of scenes. It's mostly that, and the tra- I thought the trailer looked good for that, so I'm looking that forward looked, to that. That does look like it. it. Looks like it's a very Oscar bait film from Nolan because it, most of his films are very visceral and mind bending, whereas this you can't really mind bend with this. I imagine he'll try his best with the. Um... It seems to be about um, uh, Oppenheimer's state of mind, given what was happening and how dramatic the actual setting off of an atomic bomb is. Which I think there's there's room for Nolan to make that visually big and maybe visceral in a different way. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, June part two is coming out. I'm hopeful about that. John Wick. Chapter- Already? Yeah, it's coming out this year. When did, this, uh, when did the first one come out? 
2021. Yeah. That's going to be rushed. Mm, it depends how much they already had in the can before. Maybe. But I do feel like that's very soon. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, John Wick Chapter 4 is out. Uh, I don't know if the, how much story there is left to tell in John Wick. Uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 comes out, which we feel like has been in, in production for years and years now, but that's coming out finally. The, yeah. bar- the Barbie movie's coming out with Margot Robbie as Barbie, which I think is... People are saying good things about that. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I can only assume they're doing it in a slightly... I don't know, arch and satirical way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think it'll be for five-year-old girls that play with Barbie dolls. No, no, I think um, you're right. But did you say John Wick chapter? Is that chapter four? Four, yeah. I just read something um, last night that the director of John Wick is going to be doing a film with Michael B. Jordan that's um, it's a Tom Clancy film. Oh, so Michael Jordan's he's, already, think- he's already done something Tom Clancy, so they're obviously following that up. And yeah, it's like a sequel to that. I know I didn't see the first one, but I like the no, idea neither. of the John Wick director being involved for a film like that. I think that'll be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to put the first one down to the fact that it was, frankly, it was in the middle of lockdown and all of that shit. And yeah. and it's like normally normal circumstances, Michael B. Jordan at the helm of a film, essentially, you know, at the centre of a film that's obviously trying to start a new franchise. You'd expect that to have more fanfare and be seen more. But I'm going to give that one a pass and say, look, now that things are open, let's have another look at Michael B. Jordan doing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested, yeah. Yeah, just with that that style of video game and the way that those have been like made for video game media, I think it lends itself very well to John Wick's yeah. director. I don't know the guy's name, sorry. Um, because has John Wick, have the John Wick films had the same director for all four? I think so. Really? Um, I'm not 100% sure about that, but I thought it was. They certainly, even if they don't have the same director, they've, they've almost got like um, a template that they all have to follow, if you see what I mean. The, yeah. the action is all very, very similar. That's why I thought it was the same director. But yeah, that's, um, yeah, that'd be worth uh, worth checking out. That might be Jordan thing. Um, and uh, the Flash movie is finally coming out. And I'm interested in, in that, not necessarily to watch it, but just to see what kind of car crash ensues. Is that the Ezra Miller was in? Yeah. They're releasing that? They're releasing it. They're still working out whether to um, have him promoting the film, believe it or not. Well, is he not under arrest? Like, is he not he, in police custody? He's not. Well, he's been arrested and he's pleaded guilty to some charges, but the more serious charges are still on the way. So I think he's out on bail, basically. Um, it, what The weird thing is, is that a rumour came out, and take all these things with a pinch of salt, because you never know quite, but just another another example of how... Uh, DC it seems to be unsure how to bloody d- handle things. Is apparently some DC executives have said they're not necessarily ruling out Ezra Miller continuing to play the Flash, even after this movie. Jeez. Oh. So I just but they cancelled Batgirl. That's that's cool. I don't know what's going on there. If I'm honest, I mean, if Ezra Miller, I, I mean, I have, you've seen the Justice League film, right? Yeah. Ezra Miller is. Aside from all of his his like issues, he's a competent actor. But I didn't exactly go, oh fucking hell, Ezra Miller. He's totally sort of stolen that film, or or completely kind of defined that film. It's not like it's not like um, Ryan Reynolds with Deadpool. Do you know what I mean? It's like I, you could get fucking anyone to replace him as Flash, and no one would notice. No one would care. I don't think. I don't know why they're is... hitching their their colours to that mask at all. I don't know how you feel about the character of the Flash, but I don't think the Flash is that interesting. To no. have his own film, he just no. runs quickly. Yep. You know that. That's it. 
Yeah, There's I no mean, complex layers to uh, them. He's yeah, fast. DC have this problem. I mean, I'm sure there are DC fans who would disagree, but I mean, have you ever have you ever read a Hawkman comic? <laughs> no. <laughs> Green Green Lantern. No. That Archer thing that they have on the telly. No. Green Arrow. It's whatever. Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. Really. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and then a load of supporting characters. Yeah. That is what it is. So there you go. Um, so but yeah, but those sort of the biggest releases uh, this year. Um, but in terms of releases, we also like to talk about kind of the new releases coming out. I've got a list here. I mean, shout out with anything that's coming out in the next four weeks that, that catches your eye, mate. Um, Steven Spielberg's uh, sort of much discussed at The Fablemans comes out on January the 27th in the UK. That's his sort of semi-autobiographical drama. Uh, plane, which is a totally bog-standard Gerard Butler B-movie about a plane. Um, a horror movie called Unwelcome, which looks like it's a British film. British horror movie. Uh February the 1st, 2023, all I know about this is the title, uh, Geki Juban's Sword Art Online, the movie, Progressive. I've no idea what that's about. It's Japanese animation. It's probably bonkers. Um, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish comes out, which is Antonio Banderas's old Puss in Boots. I think they might have squeezed too much out of that already. Uh, Brendan Fraser in The Whale. He's been heavily awards tipped for that. Knock at the Cabin, a horror movie, a horror mystery with uh, Dave Bautista. Um, Broker, which is a, a a Korean drama. Just checking, is that Bong Joon Ho? No, it's a it's a Japanese director doing a Korean uh, a Korean film. We'll find out more about that when it comes out, um, I suppose. Um, what else? Saint Omer, a foreign language drama from France. She is Love with Hayley Bennett and Sam Riley, which is a drama that's not really kind of. A, a, caught my eye really you resemble me which is a, a an indie drama magic mike's last dance is coming out um in february february the 10th a woman talking which is a i think it's a drama i mean the main talking point of this is it's really stacked in the cast it's rooney mara claire foy jesse buckley francis mcdormand so it's one of those ones where someone said almost it doesn't matter what the um what the story's about because they just gathered together like a a, a huge hmm. stack of, of Everyone, like, watchable yeah. actors yeah you get what you get those sometimes these big ensembles uh February 17th Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania um there are some big Ant-Man fans out there I'm not sure this is the part of the Marvel franchise that needs to be on its third movie already but there you go um The Sun comes out which is sort of the follow-up to that film The Father which Anthony Hopkins won his Oscar for Vanessa Kirby Hugh Jackman uh and February the 24th, just before our next episode comes out, The Cocaine Bear, <gasps> yes. which we've mentioned on our other podcast and on this podcast, uh, Missing, a drama, which sounds like it's about someone who's missing, uh, Joyland, and a, a uh, What's Love Got to Do With It, which is not a reboot of the Angela Bassett um, uh, 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 Tina Turner film. It is a cross-cultural romantic comedy. Uh Okay, not so shite. Yeah, I mean, see what I mean when I said nothing's gripping me, other than the cocaine bear. They sound a bit underwhelming. Yeah, it's Florida's Florida. January is an odd month. <laughs> what the fuck! I've just had a really weird sort of. You know, you know when you you know when you're listening to the radio in your car and you go through an area where like pirate radio comes in and you just get random words thrown in from another frequency. I think pirate radio has just taken over my brain. It's like when you go to type something and you, someone says something in the background and you end up typing that word. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's um, yeah. January can be a bit strange like that. It's uh, 
you've just they sort of shove out all the all the awards films in time for consideration and then like late january early february is a bit like it's like the the graveyard shift it's like it, there'll be films that just got dumped there because the studio doesn't know what to do with them films that no one else is that bothered by and we've got ant-man so that's your month huh. um but aside from that we tend at this time to talk about uh, the films that we've watched in the past month, new films, you know, you know, and you know, notable films aside from the features. Uh, so, James, what films have you watched uh, since we last uh, spoke to our lovely audience? Fucking loads, by the way. Because um, um, I had the first week of the, the year I had about, I was only working three days, so I had four days off. So I had time to just kind of recharge my batteries and watch some films. And um, my partner's not big into watching films. She definitely yeah. prefers watching series. But we watched Knives Out and then Glass Onion. Mm-hmm. Like pretty close in the same kind of day. That was good. Um, preferred Knives Out to Glass Onion, but everyone else yeah. think Glass Onion's better. No, I think, I think Knives Out's better. I think people think Glass Onion's better because you get to see more of Daniel Craig in it. Eh. He's not in it as much as Knives yeah, Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, suppose... What else? Watch the menu on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Did you watch that? I also watched the menu. What did you think of it? Um, I liked it. Um, I think it's it's got a really sort of dark satirical tone, uh, which I like. It, uh, I thought. I mean, Ray Fiennes was very good. I thought the it had some quite funny bits, you know about. I'm not a huge. I don't really know like all about kind of fine dining and poncy cookery, but you know I've I've watched a couple of episodes of MasterChef, so I kind of got the jokes they were doing about the the foams and the jus and the dining experiences and huh. stuff. Um, it's one of those films where it what what's really going on unfolds right. And it did that quite well. You know, sometimes you get films that uh, what's going on unfolds and you go, oh, shit, really? And you know, you know, but actually it's quite good as it unfolds. And I thought the ending was good. Uh, the, the film like that needs, you know, if they cop out or they have a, you know, the ending doesn't kind of land at all, you would have a problem. But I thought they, they it was quite a, a good ending. And I, and I was kind of, I was kind of gripped and I was laughing in all the right places and I was gripped in all the right places. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. What about you? I thought it was a bit shit, really? but also quite fun at the same time. <laughs> I mean, I would say uh, it, it's the sort of film that Alfred Hitchcock would describe as a refrigerator film, where as you're watching it, you go, fine, you go along with the story, and then sometime later, when you open the door to get the milk out, the fridge door to get the milk out, you go, hang on, do you know what I mean? I and I, I sort of I sort of forgave it its kind of flaws because I did I did enjoy it I did enjoy Ray Fiennes chewing the scenery and kind of going basically nuts with a knife in his hand. Yeah, I thought that was, I thought Ray Fiennes was good, but I thought the plot was weak as piss. I thought it was fucking stupid, and I thought everything everything bad about the plot made everything good about Ray Fiennes just really fucking stupid. That's how I felt. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who's not seen it. Um, but the, the I, only thing that's good is that there's some really satisfying deaths. I know, I know, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I, I tell you what I thought were the weaknesses in the film. I thought, aside from Ray Fiennes, the characterizations were quite weak. Like um, uh, John Leguizamo is the faded actor. You kind of like his reason for being there. Like the reason Ray Fiennes. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but obviously Ray Fiennes has got some big plan for all of his guests. And obviously that means that each one of those guests, he has a, a view or, or an objection or something to each of his guests. You know what I mean? I don't think that's giving anything away in the plot. 
that all of those guests are there for a reason. And John Leguizamo's character's reason for being there was quite thin, I thought. And what's his name? Um, uh, the lad from About a Boy, Nicholas Holt. He, I thought his character sort of could have been a bit more. I thought it's almost like they just went, look, that's who that is. That's who that is. That's who that is. Okay, now let's get Ray Fiennes to kind of set about them. Do you know what I mean? I thought they could have bit more, a bit more effort in there if... Um, is, is, is how I'd describe it without trying to give away too much of the plot. I th- yeah, I thought it was very thin. There's a very, there's, they're hinting at a very cultist thing that goes on in the in the film, and I don't think there was enough to it. You know yeah, I mean? like, yeah. see, the thing is, I, I, you know, if you do ever watch any of these, like, you know, back behind the scenes at, like, in a, in a big restaurant or Gordon Ramsay's, like, stuff, or you see some of, like, the chefs that go on MasterChef when they have, you know, big-name chefs and they take the contestants out to the restaurant, yeah, it does seem a bit culty the way they say these people work really long hours and don't make much money and have this almost kind of slavish devotion to the charis- charismatic chef. So when they started to act a bit culty like that in the film, I went, ah, oh, that's quite good. Do you know what I mean? It's like they've taken a thing you've seen and they've done a bit more with it. But then I just went, okay, now what? Do you know what I mean? All they did yeah. was, you've probably seen this in the trailer, when whenever Ray Fine says something, everyone, the order, everyone in his like kitchen stuff goes, yes, chef, all at the same time. And it's like, that's fine, but I think it would have been a better movie if they said, "Okay, well, why are they so culty?" Do you yeah, know what I mean? there was nothing. There, his his team of um, chefs absolutely adore him, and they don't actually say why because they talk like there's stories about him from those members of staff about all the flaws of Ray Fiennes' yeah, yeah, character. Yeah. I thought that was weak as fuck. Yeah, um, they could have, they could have done more with that, and I think it would have been. I think I think the bones of the film are pretty good. Where it go, where it starts, and where it goes to, all, all stacks up. But it's just sort of like the rest of it's a little bit to join the dots. Like Anya Taylor, Anya Taylor Joy's character and her motivation, she's very good as always. Anya Taylor Joy is really really good, but in terms of the characters she's been given to play, it's a bit like oh well, that's that gives you a little bit of plot, and that's it. And I, I still I, I have to say. I enjoyed it while it was on. I, I thought it was an enjoyable watch. I didn't take it too seriously, and I enjoyed some of the satirical jabs. Um, and I thought, eh, you know, uh, I, I didn't. I think, like you, I think it, there was stuff about it that was silly, but I still enjoyed it. I, I, I still enjoyed watching it. See what I mean? Yeah. Um, Glass Onion. I also watched. Um, see, I, I I like Knives Out, and I think I must be the target audience for Knives Out. I mean, do you do you like a kind of you know country house murder mystery? generally, like an Agatha Christie, any of that sort of thing. I don't usually go to them, if if you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't jump out them, but everyone had been raving about Knives Out, and I thought, right, so it's not just going to be like a Myth Marple. It's going to be quite yeah, quite fun, and it was quite fun. Yeah. yeah I, so, I enjoyed it. See, I mean, I, I must be the target audience for these films, because I'm I'm not really of the generation when Agatha Christie was, was a thing, but my mum and dad used to watch them a bit. And frankly, my mum and dad, your granny and granddad, they watched those old Hercule Poirot and Agatha Christie things a bit ironically anyway. So they must like Knives Out and Glass Onion. I haven't really discussed it with them too much, yeah? Um, and it's kind of like those movies are for people who kind of know what a country house mystery is, quite enjoy in a sort of light Sunday afternoon viewing type way the whole kind of gathering everyone together and saying how they did it at the end kind of thing in the twisty-turny plot, but don't take it too seriously. That seems to me, uh, that's the audience for the movie. And I thought Knives Out did that very well, because I think that country house setting was quite classic, and then they put a terrific cast together, quite good characters, and then, you know, there was a few twists and turns. I enjoy Glass Onion, but I think it was one of those sequels where they've kind of got everything from the first film, but not as good. 
I thought it was fine, but I just it's just little things like the the the, the tech billionaire's big glass house is just not as fun to be in as, as an old country house. Yeah, and, and you you can't just do exactly the same movies the first time. So I'm not saying it's you know it's bad because they didn't do it exactly like the first one. It's just like the setting they picked for the second movie. It was fine, but not as good as the first one. The characters they had were fine, but not as good as the first one. But I quite enjoyed it. I, I quite enjoyed it, and I do like a bit of a silly, slightly spoofy, um, like uh, you know, murder mystery, which I, I thought was fine. Didn't have a major objection to it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's weird because you know when you're watching a film and and there's some degree of silly that you can get along with. It's like, yeah, how on earth did he work that out? How on earth did that plot twist kind of come about? You can kind of accept that. But then the ending of Glass Onion, when it's all kind of everything, everything goes completely haywire. I just thought, oh, they've just tipped over a bit there. Um, but I don't think you're meant to take any of it too seriously. It's quite enjoyable. I like Daniel Craig's character. He's obviously having a lot of fun, and I, it was we. Uh, my, Dev and I watched it on like Christmas Eve as like a bit of a, like a, a bit of light viewing over Christmas time, and it was fine for that. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. Quite enjoyed it. Um, what else? What else have you seen? Uh, I did watch the Banshees of Inner Sharon. Yeah, you see, I wanted to see this because I thought everyone's raving about it, and is it going to like? Because we're doing the awards this month, it, should I be watching this to kind of see how it fits into kind of the awards reckoning? But I haven't seen it. it it's a, it's a, it's a miss on my part. What did you think? Um, it's not that good. Like, it's not no. that good. Okay. No. Well, I, I, I feel, uh, I feel relieved now. I feel relieved in, in advance of our real two conversation. I feel a bit relieved that I, I, that I haven't kind of contributed to that one. It's, it's funny and it's got some funny moments, but it's nowhere near as good as In Bruges. Yeah, it's pretty much the same cast and it's the same director and writer. Yeah, and yeah, it, it's not that good. So it, I don't know. It, the, the only reason I'm comparing it as such is because uh, Colin Farrell also won a Golden Globe for that same director. And didn't same, they? Didn't they have it down as a comedy? Uh, yeah, it's got some funny moments. It's very irreverent, is what I would say. There's a lot of yeah, but I mean, it, it's it's, it's about. It's about mental illness and suicidal thoughts, though, isn't it? It's that this is what's so weird about the, the Golden Globes is that things get categorised as comedies that you just think you don't need to kind of just have a best film category. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, the I think it's so they can divvy up awards a little. Bit, yeah. Yeah. It is, it's got funny moments. Colin Farrell is he plays a bit of a funny character, and Brendan mm. Gleeson's Brendan Gleeson's character I thought was pretty weak. I didn't understand it at all. Yeah, um, it, it, it is interesting that it's 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 Colin Farrell. He won, and I, I don't think Brendan Gleeson was even nominated, was he? Yeah, because uh, rightly so, because Brendan Gleeson doesn't really do anything apart from starring alongside uh, Colin Farrell. It's got it's got yeah. some funny moments. It is very dark. It's 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 very reminiscent of In Bruges, but not as funny. I felt like In Bruges had its dark moments, but yeah. Um, yeah, was you know on the whole, it was just mostly jokes. Yeah, whereas yeah, didn't didn't get on with Banshees even sharing as much. But we put it on, and I my partner seen In Bruges, and she thought it was really good. And I was like, well, it's pretty much the same cast and same director. Let's put it on. I'm sure it's good. And yeah. it is a bit weak. It is a bit. Oh, I thought it was a bit weak anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to see what you think of Three Billboards out of Ebbing, Missouri, because I thought that was really, really good. Not as yeah. good as in Bruges, but really, really very good. And uh, m- maybe, I mean, that was about a mother dealing with grief, and this is about a, 
and, and how it impacts all the relationships. And this is about someone dealing with with you know uh, you know uh, mental health problems. And it's almost as if he's taken the same template and just applied it to another storyline. Well, yeah, and I still which you'd already done very well before. I haven't forgiven who's his face, uh, Martin McDonough. Yeah, for um, the atrocity, the absolute war crime that was uh, Seven Psychopaths, because that <laughs> film was fucking terrible. <laughs> Not enough gets said about how fucking bad that film was. <laughs> it was just shit, and it was just trying to make jokes that were just let's use words that are seen as taboo, and then see if we can you know make a film out of it. But it wasn't remotely funny. That film okay. got. Plotted. So I've not forgiven him for that. So maybe there's a part of me that's a bit annoyed about that. Yeah, still. I mean, I'll but, get around to seeing Banshees of Anna Sharon, and we'll see. Um, but yeah, I'm slightly relieved now that uh, it's not it, it's not going to be in the in the reckoning for our awards discussion. No, I'm, I'm I, well, really I will not Yeah, yeah. If you watch it, oh, no, yeah. Well, well it's, too, it's, yeah. Too, it's too it's too late, late now. Yeah, it's too late for me. Um, anything else? Uh, no, I think that's what I got caught no, this month. That's so. a, that's a good that's a good showing that uh, that brings a few things out. Um, what have I watched? What new films have I watched? Well, we've already talked about the menu and Glass Onion, which I which I watched, and I think we kind of broadly agreed on both of those. Um, I also went to see Avatar: The Way of Water. Oh, did you? Um, so I didn't see it in IMAX 3D, but I did see it on a very big screen. Um, and what do I say about this? Pretty much exactly what I said about what what I feel about the original Avatar film. It's absolutely fine. It's it, the ba- it's a very very basic story. I mean, uh, I might as well uh, lay it out, but it's really not very complicated. The humans are back. They're determined to wipe out the giant Smurfs this time. Last time they were mining unobtainium. This time they're saying there's one line of line of dialogue saying the Earth is dying and they need to colonize somewhere else to live. They're also after a rare and valuable substance that can only be obtained by brutally hunting sea creatures that resemble Earth whales. Jake Sully and his new family, including inexplicably Sigourney Weaver as his daughter, leave their forest. <laughs> Basically, Sigourney Weaver has been reincarnated through the giant magic tree matrix um, as, as as their daughter. <laughs> um, Fuck off. <laughs> and for a while, Jake Sully and his new family are kind of leading. He's got teenage sons. He's got a smart daughter. He's got a little daughter. The smart daughter has got Sigourney Weaver's voice. You just kind of have to go with it, really. Um, and they're leading the resistance to the humans until they realise that the human army are uh, targeting him personally. So they run off, they leave the rest of the, the forest smurfs behind them and say, look, we'll go and then you'll be safer. And they arrive at a large uh, group of po- islands populated by giant aquatic smurfs, who are pretty much like the forest smurfs, except they're slightly more greenish. Um, and But the humans are still closing in and trying to find them. So they spend a lot of time underwater. James Cameron has a great time filming underwater. He's invented some new underwater motion capture technology to do this movie. It looks very good. James Cameron filming in and underwater, clearly he's very good at, you know, see the abyss and if you must, Titanic. Um, The story is so basic. I mean, I've literally told you the entire plot of a three-hour movie. Um, In its defence... It is fairly refreshing to have a story that kind of makes sense as a beginning, middle of an end, because there are a lot of big modern blockbusters, their story is completely incoherent. This is quite straightforward. Jake yeah. Sully has left the forest Smurfs, he's hanging out with the sea Smurfs, uh, and the humans are still bad and trying to destroy everything, and you'll get a lot of exciting action along the way, and a lot of good footage of, you know, swimming around in the sea. You know, it's it's like a... Funnily enough, I think a lot of people are saying that the reason people are enjoying this is that you can spend three hours kind of immersed in, in like, the world of Pandora, which is a nice escape from shitty, 
you know day-to-day life in December and January <laughs> of a you know while things aren't going great in the economy and everything and it's like people are enjoying that and it's made 1.8 billion at the box office and I agree with everything he has to say about the environment so you know fine so I'm not going to sit here and get angry about the things that aren't very good about the film I mean the sea smurfs have Maori face tattoos and do the hacker when they're angry because James Cameron lives in New Zealand now and has decided to throw in some bits of stuff that he's seen from New Zealand. The acting ranges from adequate to absolutely shit. The head of the whaling ship can't possibly be a professional actor. He must be a personal friend of the director or a competition winner or something. <laughs> it looks like it looks like they've invested very heavily in the CGI. You can't say that the CGI looks shit, unlike all the other recent blockbusters where there's some like CGI that looks quite dodgy. He's put a lot of effort in making this look very, very good. Whether it's worth a billion dollars of investment, 25 years of James Cameron's career is questionable. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, it's immersive to watch. It's like an Attenborough documentary with some with a big fight scene at the end. Um, I agree with the message. I don't agree with all the hippy dippy stuff about the you know like, you know magical kind of you know you know dreadlocked Smurfs with their connection to the world, but. Uh, is is environmental destruction bad? Is human greed bad? Is is you know killing sea creatures in a in a in a, in a uh, sadistic way to 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 exploit their their bodies bad? Yep, completely agree with everything the film is trying to say, and I enjoyed watching it. There you go. It's fine. I I, I don't have an objection to the film, but it's you know like the last one. There are going to be people who love it because they love the visual kind of world to live in, and the rest of us are just going to be going to go yeah, fine. I I can't bring myself to hate it because you know there you know it's it Thor love it's it's fucking Citizen Kane compared to Thor Love and Thunder put it that way, huh. um, but you know it's fine, no no real objections. So yeah, I mean I watched some of the same films as you, but th- those are the new films I watched. I think we've covered quite a few new releases there. Oh, um, what a day! Now what we normally do here is we talk about what our resolutions are going to be for twenty twenty three. Now James, have you got a New Year's resolution for for this year? Last year, last year, one. last year, your resolution was just to try and watch more films. Um, you know, and because you you know obviously you always have a lot going on. You, you watch a lot of series. You want to just fit in more films. Was there anything specific that you had in mind? I don't. I don't actually have one. Would it be interesting for you to give me one, or we ask the listeners to give me one? We could do, um, yeah. Let's say, let, let's say, I'll, I'll put my thinking cap on and see, you know, a a, 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 a resolution for you. We'll put it, uh, we'll put it out to the, uh, we'll put it out to, you know, see if anything interesting comes up on the socials. Um, I will, uh, you know, see what comes out of that. In the meantime, I have a New Year's resolution for twenty twenty three. If we get one for you, you can carry on with it in, in future episodes. But I did have a New Year's resolution. Because I kind of, what I've been doing is my New Year's resolutions, essentially a little film project. Uh, for 2021, I, I did a bunch of John Carpenter films. Last year, I did a bunch of, you know, all of Kubrick's films. So my resolution was very simply, I'd like to do another one of those because I've really enjoyed doing them. So my resolution... Hang on, now, hang on. Is it you, Abel? No. <laughs> and, and if you're not careful, that's going to be your resolution. So my, my job <laughs> is... Is it Michael B? <laughs> no. Uh, it, is, it is David Cronenberg. Okay. So every month of this year, we're gonna I'm gonna pay a regular visit to the Cronenberg Institute. I gave it that name because there's always some sort of sinister institute where really weird body horrors, you know, sick shit is going on in a Cronenberg film. So every month we're gonna visit the Cronenberg Institute, and and I'm gonna to see how much it messes with my mind. 
There used to be a nightclub in Aberdeen called Institute, and some pretty fucking sick shit went on in there as well. Yeah, okay. Well, so that's, uh, that's an interesting. <laughs> that's an interesting parallel. Maybe maybe that kind of body horror has, has come to life in real life. Um, so there's a bit of a gap in my um, uh, in my Cronenberg uh, watching. There are a few films of his I haven't seen, so I'm going to watch those in chronological order. And then uh, I'm going to put three of my favourite Cronenberg films of all time that I have seen, like uh, to top it off at the end of the year. Um, there'll be a there'll be a list on Letterbox with all the films on it. Um, but let's keep it a surprise for you know if you want to on here. So I'm starting off with the first of his early films that I haven't seen, which is Shivers. I've kind of skipped past a couple of um, early experimental films. I'm, I'm not I'm not going to bother with those. And he did a motorcycle movie at one point, which isn't really typical Cronenberg. So we're getting into what you know proper Cronenberg. In 1975, yeah. he did Shivers. Now Shivers is the first film where he really gets into his kind of body horror ideas. Um, it was partly funded by government money because the you know the Canadian government sort of funded like film projects. So there was a bit of an outcry that he did one of his sick Cronenberg films with taxpayers' money. Um, uh, even better, he had a morals clause in the flat he was renting at the time when he made this film, and uh, the 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 moral outcry to this movie led him to be evicted from the uh, from the film from from his from his home for making this film. Which, uh, that's got to be a first, that someone can actually be thrown out of their house because they made a film that people objected to. Um, it's set in a in an apartment building itself where a lot of weird, crazy shit is going on. In that sense, it reminded me a little bit of um, uh, High Rise. Uh, but Cronenberg was writing this film around about the same time J.G. Ballard was writing the novel High Rise. So it's just a coincidence. No one, you know, stole from anyone there. Just great minds think alike. Um, it's very 70s. Um, you know, the clothes and the cars and the style and everything. But in, in terms of the storyline, what it is is that a, 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 a crazy scientist, there's always a crazy scientist, has is, is been trying to... He started out trying to um, uh, grow new organs. You grow organs, it was almost like a parasite inside human bodies, and you can grow yourself a new liver or a new kidney, which is better and easier and safer than transplants. Um, but it turns out he's a complete lunatic, and he actually starts using the, uh, or you know, uh, uses a young woman as his sex slave, and also grows parasites in her to try and see what happens. And one of those parasites basically turns into a a, a huge flesh-eating creature that jumps from person to person and turns him into a sex maniac. So she um, she becomes a, you know she gets overtaken by this parasite, wants to sleep with everything that moves. Everyone she sleeps with gets caught by the parasite. They go crazy and want to sleep with everything that moves. Before you know it, this apartment block is full of people kind of beating down doors, having like strange, you know, orgies because they've been overtaken by a mind control parasite. Um, and it's every bit as weird and disturbing as that description would suggest and every bit as weird and disturbing as you'd think because it's David Cronenberg. It is bonkers. Um, I would say that... Similar to Day, uh, George Romero's early work, David Cronenberg's early films show how good he is, but you can see that it's a very low budget and he's relying on using some quite um, weak actors because he hasn't got you know some of the cast you know that he can call upon now when everyone's queuing up to be in a Cronenberg film. So there's some bits that are a bit clunky, right? Because, I mean, just one example, there's a, an old couple 
who are traumatized one minute because they've been attacked and only just escaped being taken over. And then short, you know, in the next scene, they're sitting there watching television. And it looks like nothing's happened because they're just not good enough actors to go from one thing to the other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So some of it comes across a bit clunky, but there's lots of weird shit going on. Um, there's a there's a sign on the wall of the kind of the freaky institute that says sex is the invention of a very clever venereal disease. It's kind of showing David Cronenberg's kind of you know really sideways look at life. Um, but I can see why it was very controversial. I mean, there's a scene in the lift where a, a man attacks a man who's been overtaken by the parasite attacks a woman. There's no getting getting around it. Once that parasite's taken a person over, if the next person they attack for sex, it's rape. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And the thing is, it's already horrible. It's not like everyone goes, oh, it's okay, that zombie's just eaten that person's flesh and disemboweled them. It's all horrible. But David Cronenberg adds this sexual dimension to it, which just makes it more disturbing. Mm-hmm. Because he, could take, he takes it and sexualizes it. What he's basically saying is these people are sex-crazed. And what do people do when they're sex-crazed? They, they, you know, they, they attack each other, they attack everyone around them. And it does, it is... It is extra disturbing as a result, which is weird because the gore and the people being, you know, having their arms ripped off is is one thing, but the actual sexualized part of it is oddly more disturbing than than the violence, which I think is basically why Cronenberg made the film. I mean, he's basically saying, isn't that interesting that that the sexual side of it is the most disturbing side of it? It's also him getting a chance to to start with his um, his basically career long fascination with the body changing with body horror. Um, but it's it's uneven and it's it's on a low budget, so I I enjoyed it, but it's clearly inferior to it. To the once he starts working with Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, James Woods, and has bigger budgets, his films take a huge jump in quality. Do you know what I mean? Although he's obviously capable of totally freaking out an audience, is what you get from this movie. So early 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 movies. Sometimes it's known as the Parasite Murders. If you want to seek it out, it's not known by the same title in every territory, but it's either known as Shivers or the Parasite Murders. It's widely available. Uh, definitely worth a watch if you like that sort of thing, but it is very, very disturbing stuff. Um, that's uh, you know that that's my entry in you know the first visit to the Cronenberg Institute. That that's that's how that's panned out. Um, this is inspired in me an impromptu top ten, uh, as I always do. Uh, I always try and give the audience something extra for the, these films I do for the project. Um, because this film takes place pretty much entirely in an apartment block and that's kind of part of the, the setting, I've done a, a top 10 in no particular order of films that take place or mostly take place in apartment blocks. And it goes like this. High Rise, uh, Rear Window, obviously, uh, Wreck, The Apartment, Wait Until Dark, The Raid, obviously, Dread, mm. obviously, uh, Candyman, the 1992 original, Dark Water, the Japanese original, and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, a mostly very disturbing top ten films. Oh, so, oh. that so that's January's entry in uh, the the visit to the Cronenberg Institute. Next month's visit to the Cronenberg Institute will be his equally disturbing seventies follow up, Rabid. Um, but that's all. Anything else to add for the roundup before we uh, before we close and move on to I the features, mate? Don't think so. Well, thank you very much. That's the roundup. On with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. 
Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from our watch list. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list. And you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month, we look at a dark action thriller that only had a small release at the time, but showed up on plenty of critics' best of lists and has been recommended to us by listeners possibly more than any other film. The classics and recommended feature for episode 33 is Green Room. So, James, had you seen this before? No, I hadn't. I had never heard of it. So, yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of a... This is where sometimes the hidden gem and the classic overlaps, it, but it can only be a hidden gem if we've already seen it and want to recommend it to other people. This is where we watch films other people have recommended to us. That's why it's in uh, in this part of the, the podcast. So it it sort of it was released to a couple of festivals in 2015. It was made in 2015 and just released at some of these independent film festivals. Uh, but its proper cinema release was in 2016. That's when most people who watched it would have likely seen it. Uh, it stars Patrick Stewart, uh, the late Anton Yelchin, uh, probably most famous for uh, the uh, his, his part in the reboot of, of Star Trek. Joe Cole from Peaky Blinders and Gangs of London. Um, it's directed by a guy called Jeremy Saulnier, who's a sort of a very much an indie director, a career indie director of things like Blue Ruin and Murder Party. And what I'd heard about this film was that it was violent, bloody, tense, and really at the top end of like an 18-rated kind of violent film or R-rated violent film. And the storyline essentially goes to, you know, a, a sort of a, a not very successful punk band, have a gig cancelled, need a bit of money, get offered a gig in this out-of-the-way place that turns out to be full of sort of racist neo-Nazi skinheads. It all goes horribly wrong, and they find themselves trapped inside the green room, literally the, the, the artist dressing room inside this venue, surrounded by people who want to hurt them, and they've got to find a way out. So it's got a bit of assault in, on Precinct 13 in its pedigree, and it's kind of like part violent thriller, but sort of has the kind of plot points of a horror movie. That's basically the film we're talking about. What, you'd never heard of it before, James, but then when you, you set out to watch it for the pod, uh, for the pod, did you kind of, you know, you know, did you look at the poster? Did you look at the IMDb summary and get an idea what it was about? Or did, yeah, you, just, yeah, yeah. Or did I, you just watch it completely cold? No, I got a wee kind of grasp of what the film was about because I don't like to go into films not having any idea of what the film's about. Just I find that it makes it a little bit easier to follow. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that, other than that, I just thought, oh, okay, neo-Nazis in a punk rock band are forced to fight to, for survival. Is basically what I got from it. And went from there. Yeah, and uh, so... As it unfolded for you, what were your thoughts? Because it, it, it spent a bit of time on a bit of a setup of, of the storyline, doesn't it? How, how, how did that play out to you? Yeah, I thought for such a short film, it did quite a good job of not taking that much time establishing. Yeah. yeah. Because you can fall into that trap of trying to establish for too long and your film ends up either being too long or the second half of the film isn't as strong because yeah. you spent all that time setting up and it feels like the reward's mm. a bit weak. Yeah. So I thought they did quite well with that. I felt that they kind of teed it up nicely for, you know, what happens in the second half of the film. Yeah, they sort of, they gave you enough, didn't they? Because they obviously have to get set up why they would go to such a shit gig, right? Yeah. And, you know, and there were a couple of kind of Easter eggs of plot that kind of explains... I don't want to give anything away, but the 
this is why the person who recommends a gig to them knows about the gigs. It's like, okay, that makes sense. So when other things happen in the plot, you go, all right, I understand that. And knowing that one character is more likely to kind of handle themselves in a confrontation, another part, another person is kind of the, the type to shrink from a confrontation. I thought that was quite good because you go, well, when, when the shit hits the fan, you kind of have an idea what they're going to be like. Do you know what I mean? How these characters are going to react to the situation. Yeah. Um, the... Yeah, I thought Patrick Stewart was very sinister and very plausible. Um, essentially, Patrick Stewart is, I don't think this gives her anything a plot, he is the kind of older, more intelligent organiser of the neo-Nazis and all of the other, these other kind of violent kind of skinhead foot soldiers are essentially in his thrall. He's kind of leading it as a cult, isn't he? And he, the, 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 the venue that they're at is a front for these very violent skinheads. An incident, you know, occurs, which means that they are witnesses to something uh, and... You know, they're sitting there going, well, can we talk a way out of this? Can we promise to not talk? You know, should we call the police about what we've just seen? What are we going to do? But they're trapped inside some very, very violent people. Um, I thought, did you feel as tense as the movie wanted you to feel as, as the shit started to hit the fan and they were stuck inside that room and you were waiting for something to happen? Did you feel, did you feel the tension that the film obviously wanted you to feel? Yeah, I definitely got that vibe of, they are building a lot of tension here because a lot of it is confined to that room. Yeah. So I did kind of feel like, oh, what's going to what's, what's going to happen? You were kind of eager to... It was weird for me. It was You were eager to see what happened next, but you also didn't because it was so tense and yeah. you know, it was obviously going to kick off. But yeah. I thought they did a really good job. And, and when it did kick off, I think obviously the level of kind of uh, violence and injury detail is pretty strong. Was that, yeah. too, was that too much for you? Do you think it was appropriate in the storyline? But for me, I'm not too, too bothered by that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think it for some people that you know kind of puts them off. But you know, I've watched a lot of Tarantino and I've played you know video games and watched Game of Thrones. So for me, that kind of thing doesn't bother me. But I can understand why it would because it is quite a lot. I think that I th- I think the reason some of the violence is very effective in that sense was that it wasn't. And this is not criticism of Tarantino, right? Because I actually really like the way Tarantino sort of portrays violence in his films. I think it's it's appropriate for what it, what he's trying to do. I've I've wrestled with that over the years. Well, I'm, this is not criticism of Tarantino, but Tarantino's violence is quite stylized and quite over the top, and that's fine because that's what he's trying to do. This was, I think, this was very effective in a different way because it was kind of like it was quite realistic. Do you know what I mean? I don't know what what an actual injury like that looks like because I've not been in that situation, but it it kind of, the whole style of the film was, this is kind of uh, realistic looking. So when someone actually gets hurt, it it felt like that was quite realistic injuries and quite realistic violence, which kind of made that, you know, that that realism kind of worked, I think, for for the film. Um, Yeah, I I thought it was quite quite tense. Um, Have you seen the original Assault on Precinct 13? You don't need to have done it. Just went. I think I've caught a bit of it. I've not watched the whole thing, but I know the kind of concept yeah, of it. But yeah, but that, I mean, that's basically the high watermark for this kind of film because while obviously the violence in that film has been superseded because it's mid seventies, low budget, and 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 you know everything since is kind of violence in film in sort of goes up a notch each time. Do you know what I mean? So it's not the violence in that film. It, it's nothing like in this film. But I think the way that Assault and Precinct Thirteen escalates the story and ratchets up the tension and builds the climax is really the, the ultimate template for this storyline. Yeah. Um, I thought this played out slightly differently in the way that kind of, you've got these, you've got incidents where shit happens and people are attacking and they're stuck in the room and they try something and they try something else and they're twists and turns to the plot. But there are, there are sort of 
outbreaks of violence and then quiet moments in between, sort of quiet scenes in between. How did that work for you? Um, yeah, I thought I was actually quite surprised by this film. Every everything that you're saying, I, I'm thinking, yeah, they did actually do quite a good job of that, given that it was a shoestring budget compared to what films can be made for nowadays. Yeah, and you know how they they kind of work with those limitations to still create quite a tense, yeah, interesting, thrilling film. And then and then the dog attacks, fucking hell. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Yeah, that, that kind of thing. I hate that. I don't know, there's just yeah. something so vicious and gory about it. Yeah, and it, it portrays a very sort of bleak and depressing world, isn't it? It's this, this, this. It's back end of nowhere. Sort of, is it Washington State? And it's like, it doesn't. It's not the kind of world I would want to even visit. Do you know what I mean? I would not, yeah. not, not even. I mean, I definitely want to. Wouldn't go to a fucking skinhead bar, but just the general kind of neighborhoods and where they live in. It just looks like very deprived and bleak and depressing and grim. You know. Yeah. Um, if I have a criticism of this film, I don't think it quite builds to the climax it needed to. I thought, I thought okay. personally, I thought the ending was a little bit of a... I thought... It's not that it was silly, because I think it was very consistent with the characters and that when they have that, you know, when they have the sort of final confrontation and who survives and who doesn't and how it plays out. I don't have a criticism of, of, of what happened. I just feel like the... I thought the ending was... And it was it was it was it was a bit low key compared to what I was expecting, and maybe that's my fault for like wanting something. You know what I mean? I'm I'm almost like reviewing the film I wished I'd seen rather than the film I did see, and that's not my, you know it's not the director's fault. They're trying to do a certain thing. Yeah. It's not my fault. My expectations are different. But I just kind of felt I thought the ending was a little bit of a damp squib compared to what had gone before, and and I and I did think I don't I don't I don't want to, you can tell me whether you disagree, but I without plot spoilers, a, a force of skinheads assembles. Yeah. And there's this whole build-up like, oh, wow, red laces means they're the kind of skinheads you really got to watch out for. There's a lot of them. This could get really bad. And then nothing really happens with that storyline. The kind of story goes off in a different direction. They go, I don't want to spoil the plot, but it's like they don't use the skinhead army the way I thought they would. And, I, and I'm not sure if that was... On the other hand, if, you know, if it had just been just straight up frontal assault by the skinheads in real life those people wouldn't have lasted five minutes so i kind of it makes sense in a way that they would have done something different with the story but i just kind of went you spend all this time building up that that's the thing that happens and then it doesn't happen it felt a bit like it, it felt like a little bit of the tension they'd built up sort of fizzled out in the end these are minor criticisms because overall i thought the film was very, was very good but I, I did think it could sort of it didn't quite build up to a climax the way i thought it was going to am i being unfair um, yeah, I I felt that the ending was rushed a little bit. I don't know how you felt. I felt like they did spend a lot of time building up, and I thought, okay, you got to do that to kind of establish it. Yeah. And I thought the second half had a lot of action, but I do feel that the, you're right. The ending was kind of like, oh, there you are. There's your ending. For me personally. I mean, the flip side is, if they had sort of gone all out with like the the, the way I've just described, there would have been people going, "Oh, you've just nicked from the ending of Assault and Precinct 13." All right, so it's kind of I don't blame them for trying to do something different. I just kind of feel like yeah. they've built something up and they're not quite done everything they could with the story, which is I think it it's quite a common flaw in independent films. You go, "That's a really interesting idea." They haven't quite done with it what they could have done. Yeah, but on the whole, it was very good in the the you know the the storyline, the characterization behind it, the storyline behind it. I thought it all stacked up pretty well. I thought, I thought the attack dog that it was a bit of a metaphor for the story, which I thought that was quite interesting. It's one, it's one of those metaphors where 
you don't need to notice it because the movie stands on its own. But if you do notice it, you kind of go, yeah, I get it. Yeah. You know, what's the difference between the attack dog and the skinheads that have been kind of, you know, bred for violence? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, on the whole, I enjoyed it. I mean, would you recommend this to our audience? Um, the, ones, the ones who haven't seen it? Depends what your thing is, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's it's... It's a pretty good example of a sort of locked room or confined space, how the hell are we going to get out of this kind of storyline. I think it does that. It does that pretty well. And, you know, it's definitely, it, yeah, it's like when when Tony, friend of the pod, initially, you know, sort of alerted, he's one of the people alerting this film and says, oh, it's put me right off neo-Nazi skinheads. <laughs> it certainly doesn't show them in a, in a kind light. Um, but yeah, I think this is, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad this got recommended because it is a pretty, you know, it's, it's an intense experience, which I think is, is worthwhile. No, it's, it's, I wouldn't watch it for casual viewing though. Yes. It's, you kind of have to be in the mood to watch it. Yeah. Like know, that. know what it is you're about to watch for sure. Yeah. For sure. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and so why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month's feature was quite successful on release but overshadowed by off-camera controversy involving its director and is not mentioned as often as it should be in discussions of the best action films of the 21st century. The hidden gem for episode 33 is Apocalypto. So James, obviously you've watched Apocalypto before as have I. Um, do you do you think this qualifies as a hidden gem? I mean, it made 120 million dollars at the worldwide box office. Um, I would have probably swapped this about with Green Room. I would have said Green yeah. Room is more of a hidden gem, but yeah. I think we're just talking about good films this month. The yeah. the titles we give them is irrelevant, so I I wouldn't call it a hidden gem. But I do remember watching it in 2012 and considering it a hidden gem. Yeah, when I first got Netflix, it was on Netflix, and I thought, oh, what's this about? And then, um, yeah, that to me it was. I remember seeing a poster for it in two thousand and six, and obviously being far too young to watch it then. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, hidden. Yeah, I suppose so. In a weird way. Yeah, I mean, the reason I'm sort of arguing for this to be a hidden gem is that um, when people talk about, oh yeah, really good action films that have you know come out in the past like twenty years, it doesn't get mentioned as much as other films, and I think it's a really very, very, very strong action film that doesn't seem to get as much of a mention. I think. It's it look. It's filmed in an approximation of the Mayan language of medieval Mayan language, so it's always going to be a bit more niche than a film in English. It is you know, I mean, this sort of action in a film where all the characters speak English, I think, would have made more money at the box office. Then that's not an argument for doing it in English. I'm saying that's just it's it's inevitable that a film like that uh, 120, works, yeah. 120 million is pretty good for yeah. a, for a, it's not even in French it's not even in Italian or German you know what I mean it's in a language it's only spoken by a very small number of people um it's uh also the, the reason I think it's a bit of a hidden gem it just it gets mentioned a lot less in other of Mel Gibson's films that he directed he's not directed a huge number of films but when they do talk about the films he has directed it, it sort sort of goes Braveheart Passion of the Christ Hacksaw Ridge and then this and I just think it just deserves to be mentioned more prominently, I think. It also got overshadowed at the time by the controversy Gibson generated because between him making this film and this film actually being released, one of his first sort of famous drunken anti-Semitic outbursts hit the headlines. Yeah. And all that shit happened and then this film came out. And it just, you know, 
it kind of got um, it got overshadowed a little bit by events off the field, um, so to speak. Um, what did you think about the film the first time you saw it? What how did it affect you the first time around? Um, I think I was surprised at it um, because, like you say, it's not it's in a language that you know about a thousand people. That's an exaggeration, but not many people speak, and it's hard to find actors that speak that language. So I was surprised at how they actually managed to get a film like that made with that language. I was very mm-hmm. impressed. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I, I think I kind of knew what the film was going to be about, kind of just based on the trailer and yeah. knowing that yeah. it was going to be set in, you know, you know, in the, in the Mayan period and then be kind of that kind of bog standard film. And it, kind of, it was kind of that had, like, twists and turns and it showed, like, the kind of cruelty and you know just the violence of that time and i kind of expected that but the ending was probably the bit that caught me off guard the most i mm-hmm. thought that was brilliant yeah it's interesting i mean we'll we'll, we'll come to that because there's there's a lot behind this so um directed by mel gibson from a script that he developed and co-wrote with the bloke called farhad safinia is an iranian uh, immigrant to america who doesn't have a huge number of credits apart from this film so it's very much a mel gibson film it's one of only five films he's directed to date mel gibson Although he has two more directing jobs in development at the moment, uh, a Lethal Weapon sequel and a Passion of the Christ sequel, which is uh, oh well, good. <laughs> I mean, Passion. How the fuck are you directing a sequel to Jesus? Well, basically, apparently, it's going to be set like you know after three days where Jesus comes back and sort of talks to his disciples with the same guy that played Jesus. Yeah, he's going to play Jim Caviezel as Jesus, even though he's in his mid fifties now playing right. Jesus. Yep. No worries. It's it, that that's a weird one because he's. He's aged quite well, Jim Caviezel, but he's still in his fifties now, and he's you know he was he was the right age to play Jesus then. He's not the right age to play Jesus. Now, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Jesus, um, what happened to you in those three days? That's right. Yeah, well, you know, I died, didn't I? But um, <laughs> also, Jim Caviezel has gone completely down the QAnon Trump rabbit hole, and I know Mel Gibson's not exactly kind of you know progressive in his politics, but it is going to be weird having a you know those two as the front line of your movie. Um, I mean, it's it's inevitable when you talk about Mel Gibson. He's obviously a very highly controversial figure because some of the stuff he did when he's had a drink. Um, how does that affect you watching his films now? I mean, there, there have been accusations that this film is is racist because of its depiction of native peoples. I mean, did, were you thinking about Mel Gibson, the kind of drunken, ranting, you know, figure when he was watching this, or did you did you just kind of like able? Were you able to put that to one side? Um. So. I'm not gonna lie. When I watched this the first time, I had no idea. Yeah, I knew that Mel Gibson had some controversies, and there was kind of this idea of him being a bigot, kind of floating about. And but I remember that from the time. I remember it actually catching on the news, not quite understanding what was going on. Mm-hmm. But when I watched the film, I knew that it was directed by Mel Gibson, and I thought, oh, okay. So I think from that, I think I kind of did that thing where okay, so he's he's been caught up in a lot of bad things and done some bad things, but. Has he apologised for them? Has he atoned for them? Is that why he was allowed to make these films? But then I realised that Apocalypse was directed around about the same time. Mm-hmm. But when I watched it, I just watched the film. Um, unless, I don't know, it's it's hard for me because that line of being a bad person and also doing good things is a very hard line, isn't it? Yeah, I know. And um, it's one of those things where, you know, do we still enjoy the music of Kanye West, even though he's said some pretty anti-Semitic things recently? Yeah, I know. Do you know what I mean? So it's one of those ones where you, you, you've got to kind of come to your own conclusion with that. Yeah, I think I, I know what you mean. 
but no, I think I just kind of watched the film, really. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of arrived in the same place. And I think the reason I, was, I think I was able to do that is that this is not Mel Gibson trying to put his kind... You know, this isn't Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson's kind of problematic politics coming through, if I'm completely honest. The Passion of the yeah. Christ is really a difficult watch for me because he's you know openly courting the the evangelical community with that and he's he comes from a very weird catholic like sect of catholicism he's like he's not like your common or garden you know catholic who supports celtic and you know there was a lot more incense and statues when they went to church when they were kids and other than that they're like a normal person like everyone else he's this very weird sect of catholicism which is kind of all got sort of strange shit going on so when he gets on religion i, I, I find it really problematic right this to be fair, this film has like an environmental message and it's about exploitation and corruption and destruction of the environment. And it's it, he's, he's, he's not making any, any of any political points that might play into like some of Mel Gibson's kind of weirder aspects. So it didn't bother me at all. And also from the first minute, this is just a very, very exciting film. So you kind of, so you, you, you forget so quickly because the opening scene of the film is, is sort of, uh, is you get this really good shot of like the jungle and then the tapir bursting through and being chased by the tribe. And you just, you're just in the movie from then, aren't you? Yeah. Um, it's again, when I watched that film, I didn't think, Oh, I wonder like if there's going to be like a hidden message in it. I just watched it. You, know yeah. what I mean? you don't need, you don't need to know the message. Cause it's, it's just a chase movie. Yeah. It's a chase movie that, that plays out. I, I mean, it's, I like it when films do that because I, I I like it when the message is there, but I also like it when the film isn't like resting wholly on the message to work. If you see what I mean, this yeah. film works because it works. It's very very exciting from beginning to end. Just just that opening scene, it shows you. Considering he's an actor and didn't kind of make his bones as director, it's not like he he directed a movie called Man of That Face and then he did Braveheart and, and then he did this right. It's not like he had like a years long apprenticeship making films, making adverts, making episodes of TV shows like Spielberg, Ridley Scott, William Freakin, all these people who by the time they're they're directing films, they've learned the entire craft of being a director. He kind of came to it, maybe he paid a lot of attention to direct films. He's really good technically. He's really good at moving the camera. He's really good at filming action and setting up the world and hinting at the looming crisis and building up the tension right from the beginning. You know, the bits where they finished the hunt and then these very scared-looking tribes people from another group appear in the forest and there's that moment of tension, like, are they going to fight? And he tells you, oh, there's a lot of tension here. There's, there, there's a threat around in this world. Do you know what I mean? So then when the real threat does hit, you've kind of... He's, he's got the tension right from the beginning and it just goes bang. And it's, it's, it's a chase movie, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I think that, I think it just kind of, it's just there to kind of show the trials and tribulations that this guy goes through mm -hmm. in that sort of period. And, um, I think what actually makes the film better than anything else is its ending. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to give the, the ending away for anyone who's not seen it, but basically he goes through a lot in this film. A lot mm -hmm. goes on. It's a lot, it's a very tough time for the main character. Mm -hmm. And then the ending makes you think, Oh fuck! He's gone through all of that, and now he's got to go through this. Mm -hmm. But you don't get to see any of that. You just the the, the final shot makes you go, "Yeah, oh, you bastard." Yeah, that's true because <laughs> it does it. It builds up so much, and then the ending makes you think, "Wow!" It's almost like your whole world's just been turned upside down now, hasn't it? Um, it, and you thought his whole world had been turned upside down already. Um, 
I mean, I liked, I thought the film was really good, these little flourishes, like there are nightmare sequences, and when people have been beaten up and they're drifting in and out of consciousness, you kind of, they have visions of the forest, which are a very, very good way of portraying that people are kind of, will be a bit groggy when they've, when they've been beaten up. There's that really horrific village attack scene at the start, the mo- perhaps the most distressing part of which is all those little kids forlornly trailing after their captured parents because they don't know what to do. It really kind of hits home that it's like, this is horrific, this has really destroyed this community, do you know what I mean? And it sets up this hopeless situation, which then the the main character has to just fight his way out of. And he does so in such a really exciting way. And it's partly gripping, isn't it? Because there are no star actors, so no one is safe. Do you know what I mean? There is no one so famous that they can't die in the movie, right? Yeah. They, yeah, no, that, that can't happen. No, sorry. Yeah. And then, you know, you've got human sacrifice scenes. You've got... You know, it's almost like a Trump rally when they're kind of these people. They're, they're basically fighting the future, aren't they? They're, they're, their society is dying and falling apart, and they think this human sacrifice is gonna is gonna save them. Um, and you just think, how the hell are you gonna get out of this? How the hell are you gonna get out of that? Now it's being chased by a by a panther in in the jungle. It just builds, you know, and it gets away with some far fetched elements like jumping over a waterfall, a woman in labour in the midst of the action, and everything. Because you just kind of it's a really gripping story, and you're really kind of gripped by the fact that he's trying to he's trying to save himself. He's trying to save his family. He's he's basically Mel Gibson has stripped the story down to just the, the elements that is going to work best. It's really really just battle, and then at the end, yeah. so, to, so to come to the ending, there is a. Should we talk about the ending and just have a spoiler warning? Yeah, like, look. So the, the spoiler warning, right? If if you really don't want to watch. If you really want to know how, the, how this film ends, turn off now, watch Apocalypto. We highly recommend it and then come back and watch the rest of the movie. But we, we have to discuss this because you can't make sense of the movie without this, right? Yeah. So the, the, the structure of the film is these tribes people who are, you know, a bows and arrows culture who, who are com- completely living off the land. They don't have any agriculture. They, they, they're hunter-gatherers living in a village essentially in the jungle. Now, they are essentially sort of walking or running or short traveling distance away from the, the crumbling Mayan Empire, which is all cities and, 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 and a whole civilization built around the Mayans. They have big buildings, they have farmland, they have an unorganized religion, they have a yeah. government in charge and all of that. And they use human sacrifice to subjugate the local population. They are, you know, clearing villages to kind of essentially feed, the, you know, they're, they're, they're over-consuming the, um, the, the, the local uh, uh, you know, resources so that they, they've got to you know keep going until the local environment is destroyed. You see trees falling down, disease is spreading, their civilization's dying, and this is them fighting. And the, these the, the villagers kind of get away from the the, the main you know uh, antagonists, and then at the very very end he runs out onto the beach, and what he sees there is a Spanish con- conquistador ship about to land on the beach. And there's some people interpret that might that might actually be Christopher Columbus, the first ship arriving, and it's almost like saying, "Wow, all of your battles are kind of irrelevant now, pointless now, because you're going to die." Watch what these fuckers do to you. Do you know what I mean? Now, what's interesting is that we have to discuss this because you have to now get into the fact that people of my my ancestry have complained about the film, saying it doesn't accurately portray their culture. Those forest tribes are an anachronism. They would probably have, 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 have be far fewer of them. There would not be a little tribe like that 
walking distance away from the Mayan Empire because they they actually would have been hundreds and hundreds of years apart. And by by now, those tribes would have been really deep in the Amazon, away from civilization, the way they are now. Yeah, it would have been absorbed into that big city. Yeah, so, so. that's that's not realistic. Also, that the human sacrifice stuff is probably more the Aztecs than the Mayans, um, and the, the 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 those those cities would have crumbled and fallen apart because all civilizations fall, and they they were there for about two thousand years, and then they collapsed, and it was actually hundreds of years before the Spanish arrived. So the so some people are going, oh, you've, you've, you're, you're, you're racist portraying the Mayans as these kind of primitive people, the human sacrifice people. And then you're saying, and then and then the, the, the Spanish arrive. Some people have interpreted that as saying, oh, the, the, it's a good job the Spanish, the Europeans arrived to civilize South America. I don't agree with that interpretation. I think it was very much a case of if you thought that lot was bad, wait till what this lot do to you. I thought that was entirely the point of the movie. And I'm going to give Mel Gibson a big old pass on that. So... Now, we've talked a lot. We did a whole podcast about historical inaccuracy in films. And I don't know what you think about uh, this sort of level of inaccuracy in film, but I actually don't mind the inaccuracy in this film. I don't know what you thought about it. Um, I think what I've said before, I think we did the, this must be a good 25 podcast episodes ago now, but yeah. I think what I've said is that I don't necessarily mind historical inaccuracies if it's not about actual you know, documented, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. like people. So Braveheart's a piece of shit because none of that happened. And, and but, it's portraying actual historical events and people. And but do I believe different. that, is it Maya or Maya? But Maya, do I believe yeah. that these, do I believe that these people went through all these horrible things by the, uh, like the cause of their government and uh, mm-hmm. the, their leaders and all these human sacrifices mm-hmm. and then, oh fuck, now the conquistadors have come in. Yes, I believe that. D- because there was a tribe that was... 10 miles walking distance from the that mad city okay maybe not maybe that's a bit unbelievable but other than that like i think everything that happened in that film will have happened 600 or 500 yeah. 600 years ago i i completely agree and i um i'm exactly the same it's not attempting to be a historical film so i'm completely fine with it not being absolutely historically accurate and that's why i mentioned the environmental message because actually you can the, the, the way the, the my interpretation of the film and i, I read it up a little bit afterwards i think there's a lot of people think this as well this is quite an impressionistic film it, it the main body of the film is these people have been captured they've got to fight they've got to get away it's exciting to watch it's the action it, you, it, you you get storyline of family and character that, that works on a real and personal level the context of the film is actually more it's, it's quite impressionist because the idea is, is that if you look at South America overall, exactly as you say, once upon a time there were people just living off the land. And while it wasn't an easy life, and while I'm sure they would have been fighting each other for, for protection of their own territory, that's what they did. S- human civilization built up and totally changed things and exploited the environment, exploited each other, exploited animals and caused a lot of damage and then fell apart. And then the Spanish came in and then they were even worse. And it's almost like this film is like a microcosm of what has happened to the environment. Yeah. So I don't think you need, you think about the historical context. You would say, actually, yeah, broadly speaking, that is w- without it, it. It is true to what human activity has done and what humans do to each other, without needing to actually be true about a specific historical event. So I was completely fine with it. Yeah. And I and I, and I think it was. It's not saying. It's, it's specifically not saying, because if you listen to the guy, the people who wrote the script, it's specifically not saying, look at what those Mayans were like, that's what they did. This film is meant to say, this is what humans are like, this is what we do to each other, and this is what we do to the world around us. And you don't need to give one shit about that message, you can just enjoy the story. 
But if you want to know what the context of the movie is, you want to know what the film is trying to say, that's what it's trying to say, which is why we, who've been very picky about historical accuracy in the past, give this movie a pass on the historical aspect and give Mel Gibson a pass on what he's trying to say about the Mayan tribes. Because I think what he's trying to say is, you know, actually a pretty fair comment and mainly about this very exciting story. So uh, if you have not seen this, and I think there are people who haven't seen it, this is one of the best action films you can watch. You know, get over any issues you have with, with subtitles because frankly, it's all about the action. You don't, do you know what I mean? It's not dialogue heavy at all. This is just a, a good up straight action movie with a very, very clever story that works, just plays out very, very well. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at one of the most famous unrealised projects of the 1990s, in which the star and director of Total Recall tried to follow up that hit with a bloody and controversial medieval epic. The one that got away for episode 33 is Paul Verhoeven's Crusade. So, James... Had you heard anything about this before I brought it to your attention? No. I mean, what, what's your what's your background? Obviously, we all know Arnie. You, you, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger's biggest films. Uh, in terms of Paul Verhoeven, uh, you seen Robocop, the original? Um, yes. I've also seen the awful Joel Kinnaman version. Yeah, yeah, because I forced you to watch it for the yeah. podcast. Um, you seen Total Recall, the Arnie Total Recall? Um, no, and I think... The awful Colin Farrell version was on mm -hmm. the telly once, and I thought, mm, I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, the the original is like probably one of Arnie's biggest hits and best films. Total Recall is absolutely terrific. That's another one directed by Paul Paul Verhoeven, uh, and I don't know if you've seen his '90s output, Showgirls and uh, Starship Troopers. Uh, no, I didn't realize they were all done by that guy. I thought he was a left back for the Netherlands. Um, <laughs> So Paul Verhoeven has kind of specialised in uh, some of Hollywood's more violent films, but he always manages to fit in some kind of sly satire in what he's doing. I mean, you'll be aware that Robocop has got a lot of kind of funny, you know, challenging like commentary about, you know, the future of law enforcement and all that sort of things. And it's got some very sly digs at, you know, American media and society. Um, Total Recall had much the same. Starship Troopers is a futuristic film that posits like a future where American fascism is the dominant force in the galaxy and has all kinds of little digs about kind of, you know, military services, everything, all of that stuff, propaganda. And I don't think a lot, it's amazing he got as much money as he did to make that movie in the 90s from Hollywood, given what he's saying about American society in that movie. <laughs> so he's a bit of an interesting character. His films are often so violent that people object to go, oh, that's a bit much. And he once had a famous quote saying, well, I, my early childhood was spent in Nazi-occupied Holland, so maybe my idea of what's normal violence isn't the same as everyone else's. Um, uh, he's a bit of a character. And so obviously the idea of him making a film about the Crusades is uh, has some very interesting potential. Could you imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger as a crusader? Well, that's the crazy thing about this movie, because they, they started talking about this film in 1989-90 when they're filming Total Recall. I think they knew Total Recall was going to be a big hit. And the idea was Paul Verhoeven and uh, Arnie, having really enjoyed working together and having had a big hit, um, they said, let's follow this up with something else. And both Arnie and Paul Verhoeven were interested in doing a film about the Crusades. And 
uh, Paul Verhoeven was very, was very, uh, you know, very clear on this. He wanted tons of action and spectacle, which in Paul Verhoeven's world means a lot of violence as well. Let's be clear. But he wasn't going to soft pedal on the politics around the crusade. Okay, the fact that the Pope was using the whole thing as a power play to distract kind of powerful kings and noblemen who would otherwise be challenging his position. Right, people who went to the Crusades as an excuse to rape, pillage, and steal treasure, the religious fundamentalism in the Christian world that supported the Crusades, a distinction between the moderate Muslims in the Middle East who did not want to be invaded, and the hardline jihadists who are more than happy for the whole thing to escalate into a holy war and turn the Middle East into a bombed-out shithole. You can see all the parallels with the modern world here, right? Yeah. A, a general argument about how the people who want to live in peace and mind their own business can be swamped by a combination of politics and religion. And frankly, sometimes there's no difference between the two anyway. Yeah. But that's not typical Arnie fair, is it? No, it's that, that's what I'm saying. I just when so when I saw that this was going to be the, the one that got away and I saw that it was Arnold Schwarzenegger and Crusade, I thought this cannot be about the Crusades because it's just impossible for me to picture big buff Arnold Schwarzenegger doing a film set you know, during the Crusades. It just, it didn't, it didn't quantify in my brain. I couldn't picture that at all. Um, so I know that we usually talk about the one that got away and like, a, ooh, that'd be interesting. Go, what if Scorsese got to do Joker kind of thing? But with this, I kind of thought, I'm, I'm a little bit glad this didn't get to happen in a way. Not because I don't think the action would have been good because obviously this Paul Verhoeven guy has done some very, gory action films, which I, I quite enjoy, and The Crusades was a very horrible, gory time. But I don't think Arnold Schwarzenegger would have been the right guy to be in this film. It's a very interesting point. And I, I mean, if you're going to play a comparison, um, Kingdom of Heaven discusses The Crusades and the rights and wrongs of The Crusades. And while I think they could have found a stronger central actor than Orlando Bloom to lead that film, I would also say that in Orlando Bloom, Eva Green, Liam Neeson, Edward Norton, a number of other actors have got in the film, they've got the people to to get across the kind of the thinking behind the the message and the, the thoughts of the movie. Whereas Arnie is very Arnie's not someone to have a conversation about the uh, you know to be involved in speeches and dialogue around what's going on in in the Middle East, is he? In real life, he probably is. He's a smart guy, but his his film persona is very much action, not words, isn't he? Yeah. So, so, so this is the question. It, it it does make you wonder whether he could have done the parts in the movie where. So essentially, the storyline behind this is that Arnold Schwarzenegger plays Hagen. He is a big, you know, a big guy. He is, but he's a thief. He's breaking into a, a castle, trying to steal jewels, and he's caught and he's condemned to death. But he happens to be condemned at a te- to death at a time when the people are looking for um, recruits to the Crusades and, you know, that religious fundamentalism, you know, early kind of Spanish Inquisition, all that sort of thing has taken hold, right? And claiming to be, to have had visions of um, of God and to to have repented and saying, now you want to do God's work is a good way to avoid being executed back then. And Hagen's got just enough sense. I think someone coaches him. I'm re- I'm, uh, there's a copy of the script. You can read the script online. It's bonkers script. But essentially, someone in, in the prison kind of coaches him and says, look, if you want to avoid being executed, claim to have had some visions, and they'll let you out. It's all very Joan of Arc. So he does that, and they say, well, you're a big guy. You can handle a sword. You've just been converted to the cause. Come and join us on the Crusades. And it's either that or kill, get killed, so off he goes, right? And he's going there because he's been kind of forced into it. And while he's there, he takes part in all the battles and everything. But over time, he starts to see 
the scheming of the people behind it, the atrocities being committed, how wrong the whole thing is, falls out with the antagonist of the movie and various plots occur around uh, uh, artifacts that are being stolen that need to maybe go back to a certain place and the battles between everyone. And the way they make it work in the script, and whether it would have worked on film, we'll never know, was that Schwarzenegger's character, Hagen, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue. He doesn't have a whole of discussion. He observes what's going on. He has to make a couple of speeches, right? And I think that it's it, that would have been very sort of untypical Arnie. But on the whole, I think the way it works is that they built, they make Arnie the observer rather than the person who's talking what's going on. And he's he's still driving the story, but he's driving the story with a sword in his hand. He's not making speeches. Hmm. Okay. It, the even even on the page written on the script, which doesn't tell you everything that would have been visually, the script is bonkers. It's incredibly violent, sexually explicit. You've got, you know, depraved Catholic bishops. You've got psychotic soldiers. You've got good and bad on both sides. It would have looked amazing on screen. Um, Verhoeven was a very controversial uh, and confrontational phase of his movies. Between, you know, after Total Recall, the films he ended up making were Basic Instinct, Showgirls, Showgirls Starship Troopers. So highly controversial guy. Um I mean, I, I mean, do you, do you think America was ready for something that was such an obvious parallel to American foreign, foreign policy in the Middle East? I mean, do you think it would have been accepted at the time? Um, yeah, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. Of course, they would have, whether they would have accepted it or not, people would have seen it, and then yep. maybe they would have had a second guess about the American foreign policy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's f- films like Platoon was coming out in 1986 and that was not that long after the Vietnam War ended. Yeah. Apocalypse Now was filmed while the Vietnam War was going on and it highlights all the horrors. Of, well, it, it, was, so, it was it was written at the back end of the Vietnam War but it took, took so long to make that by the time it came out it was after the Vietnam War but I, oh, yeah, I, get, okay. it, but I get but I get you. Yeah, you know what I mean. So I yeah, think, yeah. I mean, America's that much of a fuckery that any film you make you could say <laughs> has something to do with American, you know, yeah. foreign policy. You know, it's it's just one of those one of those fucking horrible countries. <laughs> so I mean so how it panned out is it, it it had a lot of support. I mean Arnie was huge, Paul Verhoeven was huge. They got about a hundred million dollar budget to make this movie and it got a lot of support to get made. I mean it got fired out there were several drafts of the script, discussions about how they were going to do it. Um other members of the cast that that uh, that might uh, capture your interest. Um Arnie's evil half brother who leads part of the army, um, played by Gary Sinise. <laughs> Damn it, Gary. Damn it, Gary. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how much he would, how medieval he, he looks as an actor, but would see Robert Duval as the senior Catholic priest who sends him off to war. Uh, John Turturro as the wise-cracking con man Hagen meets along the way. Um, here's where it gets a little bit dodgy and a bit too, bit too 1990s for its own good. Jennifer Connolly is an Arab princess. Uh no. And Arnie's love interest, despite being twenty three years younger than him. Um, no, thank you. So, I mean, essentially, we're talking about this as the one that got away because it didn't happen. So, why, with a hundred million dollar hundred million dollar budget agreed, Arnold Schwarzenegger at his height attached, and Paul Verhoeven at his height attached, did this film not happen? I don't know if you want to speculate as to why it might not have panned out, mate. Why did it not happen? Did Paul Verhoeven do something bad? No. Did Arnold Schwarzenegger do something bad? No, no, no. Well, okay. The one thing Paul Verhoeven did, well, we'll go through what happened. So essentially, the one thing that was kind of going to be the big stumbling block for this, this film was very, very expensive. And, you know, 
it would have been a lot. You'd, you'd get the money signed off a lot easier for just a straight ahead action film. But this is a, a period film that's going to be complex to film. You got to go to desert places to film it. The subject matter is relatively sensitive, but it really came down to money. And the reason it came down to money is because it was another film being made by Carol Coe. And you remember we talked about Carol Coe when we did the one that got away of Isobar, the film that nearly got made. All right, in, so and, these cunts are at it again. And, to, and, and essentially, Carol Coe collapsed. And they collapsed because they, their business model was all wrong. They would have one big hit that was trying to finance loads of flops. They didn't have like a big major studio like Paramount behind them. So they didn't have enough hits and it started to fall apart. Even the films they had that were hits, they needed money and distribution support from other other people like you know I think Cliffhanger was one of theirs with, with Stallone which was a hit but they needed another studio to help distribute it and they're not going to do that for free so you don't get all the money from the hit and they were struggling a little bit for money and Carol Coe was saying look can we get this under 100 million which was a big budget for back then and Paul Verhoeven was typically Dutch typically direct and a very kind of pretty pretty crusty customer, shall we say, who basically told the studio to go fuck themselves. The film was going to cost what it needed to cost and he was guaranteeing them nothing. And Arnie came out of the meeting going, yeah, we could have been a bit more diplomatic about that because Arnie's way of doing things, he's a quite, a, quite a smart player where he, Arnie's way of doing things is to say, look, we'll do everything we can to keep costs down and then fucking do whatever you want. That's the Arnie way, right? But but Verhoeven's like, fuck you. I need 100, I'm in 100 million. I'm not going to commit to a budget. I'm going to make the movie. You fucking just stay there, studio. Let me make my movie. Um, and the studio got cold feet. And instead of making this film, they, they didn't say they were never going to do it, but they say the $100 million they've got to make a movie, they're going to invest in another film and, and you're just going to have to wait. Unfortunately, that film was Cutthroat Island, which ended up, <laughs> which ended up costing more than the budget they were going to give um, uh, the Crusade film uh, because of cost overruns and pirate films are expensive to make, especially if you haven't got um, Johnny Depp you know, involved. Uh, and it flopped. Cost $115 million, made $8 million of the box, box office. Bank- <laughs> bankrupted the studio. So sliding doors moment. I mean, what they could have done is they could have said, we're not making Cuthbert Island, we're going to trust Arnie and make Crusades. And maybe Carol Coe would have like survived a bit longer. And maybe this film would have got made. But that film collapsed and they tried to keep doing it. Through the 90s, they had a few more goes. Verhoeven went off and did other movies. Schwarzenegger by 96, 97 is not quite the box office draw that he was. And it just peters out and never gets done. In the end, the Crusades movie that, that we do get is, is uh, Kingdom of Heaven. And if you want to see what a, a medieval sort of knights and, and action violent movie by Paul Verhoeven would look like, you can go and see an old film of his from 1985 called Flesh and Blood that's got uh, Rutger Hauer in it. So you get an idea of how Verhoeven would have done medieval movies. Um, if you want to see Arnie with a sword riding a horse, you can watch Conan the Barbarian. And between those three things, you can get a very rough idea in your head of what a Crusades movie like this would have been like. But, you know, that's that's your lot. It, like you say, it's something about this. It, it's enticing, but maybe it's, maybe it's too much to ask to get a movie like this. Yeah, so that's a shame, isn't it? The Crusades are a very weird thing to depict on screen. Have you ever watched that? What's Nightfall? No. It's What's that about? Based, It's a TV show with I don't know the lead actor, but it's got um, Mark Hamill in it, who plays like this weird character who I think trains the knights. And it's a TV show, and only made two seasons. I think it was done by the History Channel, and it was fucking mm. shit. But. It didn't focus on anything like that really went on the Crusades. It was all about them coming back to France. Mm. 
Yeah. And I just feel like there's such a there's an empty market there, and even like the depictions of it in like the like the Assassin's Creed games, I th- I find that like they've just done it so badly and it's so boring, but that that time in history is just so like fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I really I'm a big defender of the film Kingdom of Heaven, but you have to watch the director's cut because it was absolutely butchered to get into like a just about two hour running time of a movie that Ridley Scott had directed with all sorts of time spent on the the political context of the movie and when you strip out that political context it doesn't make a fucking blind bit of sense <laughs> you still have amazing action scenes because it's Ridley Scott right but if for the story to make any sense you have to watch the extended cut the like two hours 40 minute director's cut and that is a really good movie about the crusades which gives you you know a, balance, a balanced view of both sides and, and some really good storyline um, apart from that I think you're right it's quite a hard hard thing to film uh, and we'll never know quite what madness we'd have had inflicted on us by Paul Verhoeven and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so uh, but it's worth reading up. We're going to post a link to the script online. There's some really good stuff to read about this. Um, but uh, yeah, this really is one that got away. We closed the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month we discussed a 2008 reworking of a highly satirical 70s exploitation film into a rather bland Jason Statham action vehicle. The remake Hate Watch for episode 33 is Death Race. So, firstly, James, have you seen the 2008 Death Race before we decided to do it for the podcast? No. And I don't don't suppose you've seen the original Death Race 2000. No, I I hadn't heard of it. So the original Death Race 2000 is a very silly sort of mid-70s, low-budget exploitation film by, by the, the, the famous or perhaps infamous Roger Corman, who's the king of B-movies. He's the sort of... He, he would make a movie for, for low budget and basically you have an action scene, a shootout scene, uh, a nude scene. Uh, it would be 90 minutes and it would it would you know be cheap to make and make its money back and give you a bit of kind of uh, fun thrills as long as you don't take it too seriously. Um, he provided a grounding for a number of directors like Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, uh, even James Cameron. A lot, a lot of, a lot of bigger name directors got their first start in films that he produced. And Death Race 2000 was no exception. And I, my first experience of Death Race 2000 was going into my local video shop. Remember those kids? Seeing what to rent, and there'd always be loads of films that look really exciting and full of violence and, and content that I'm not allowed to watch, and I would be never allowed to kind of watch them, and I would always want to go and see them sometime. And it had this look of this really scary-looking car, scary-looking guy in the car, the title Death Race 2000, and the tagline was, in the year 2000, bear in mind this is before the year 2000, this is like the early 80s, um, hit-and-run driving is no longer a crime, it's the national sport. <laughs> and in Death Race 2000, these cars, it's its the Hunger Games, it's the Running Man, it's the futuristic kind of sport to distract the masses from the, the dystopia they're living in. And these, t- you know, violent-looking cars just with cattle with spikes and horrible things on them—they're racing across America, 
and you're not just got to get across America then you've also got to kill as many people as you can you get points for how many people you kill when you when you go across the road and it's a satire it's not look it's by no means a classic it's quite silly but it's got a lot of dark sly satire on it it's like portraying this the way American like TV companies like like cover sports it's got some you know you know silly political stuff uh, and it's mainly just a, a a bit of fun like exploitation i've i've no idea why they decided to do a remake of it but what they decided to do is get paul ws anderson who his best film is event horizon which i quite liked he's made the resident evil films which some people like but he's mostly responsible for total shit like alien versus predator and he was he was like got in charge to do Death Race. Now, what did you think of Death Race when you sat down to watch it? No, oh, it's it a pile of shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you expect me to say that it was going to be good? No, 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 no. Well, what actually, I've I've got a bit of the ADHD, so I just saw that it had Joan Allen from The Crucible in it. And remember that bit in The Crucible where one of the reverends just goes, "Mr. Proctor." <laughs> yeah, yeah, Paul. I spent. Yeah. I spent the 25 minutes I did watching this film just going, Mr. Bradder, and then turned it off because I couldn't be arsed with it. It was shit. It's a, it's a weird film because for such a B-movie, it cost about $70 million, which isn't top-line money in 2008, but it's quite a lot of money. It's got quite a it's got quite a top-level cast. I mean, Jason Statham is in these B-movie films, and he's the star, so it's not about him, but you've got Joan Allen, Ian McShane, Tyrese Gibson from Fast and the Furious, Jason Clark, sort of people who were in normally in proper films, we've all decided to come along and do this. It's kind of less like the original film, and it's more like... Do you remember we watched the remake of Rollerball, and they've taken a national kind of global sport, and they've made it like a, a niche sport on, on, on cable TV? Yeah. Reminds me of ESPN8 in Dodgeball. If it's almost a sport, we've got it here. And they've basically... This is like some niche kind of sport on the internet now, in inside a prison. So it's kind of like The Longest Yard and The Running Man. They've just sort of recycled about 50 other films to make this kind of silly action movie. And the plot is completely unnecessary. It's completely unbelievable. It's not even worth describing. There's no attempt to do the satire of the original. Did you get far enough into it to see that during the race they have power-ups, like in a video game? Um, I think I knew that. Yes, I think I knew that that, that was... I mean, yeah. how is that supposed to... I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this about a Paul W. S. Anderson film, but how is that supposed to work in real life? <laughs> You're driving over, like, something, and that gives you, like, ammunition, or that gives uh, you a shield. It's like... it's It plays out like a video game designed by someone who doesn't understand or like video games. <laughs> it's like Mario Kart, but shame. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what I would have rather they'd done. I would have rather they'd done a $70 million live-action version of Lego Stunt Rally. That is a movie that I would have watched. <laughs> but, you know, yes. look, it is. It's, to be honest, it's entirely consistent with this director's history of mediocrity, but it's just... It's another example, right, of... I don't know why they bothered to remake that particular film, because no one was sort of looking back at Death Race... Anyone who remembers Death Race 2000 would have rented it as a video when they were a kid in the 80s and enjoyed it, because it had a car, it had a, a shootout, it had car crashes, it had Sylvester Stallone in a really silly early role, it had some nude scenes, and it had some, you know, you know, aimless violence. No one was crying out for a remake of this. They've just sort of tried to make it. It's like a cheap, low rent Fast and Furious. It's just, but it's kind of, it's just an example of like seventy million pounds they could have could have spent on something else and uh, and and that's the way. So that we've 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 ticked off a remake off our list for the hate watch. Uh, it's to be honest, I didn't hate it. 
it was it it's not the worst hour and a half I've spent but I I mean I'm never going to watch it again it's really quite silly but you, you know exactly what you're getting it's directed by Paul W.S. Anderson it's got Jason Statham in it and it's not one of his big movies it's one of his B movies you will probably get what you want out of this film if you do choose to watch it but that's that's what we have to say about Death Race um, do you know what I have to say? I've got something to say. Jason Statham's IMDb says that he's five foot ten, one meter seventy eight. No, he no, he isn't. Right. So, my colleague from work said he was in a lift with Jason Statham, and he was taller than him. And um, my colleague is about five nine, mm. and I'm taller than my colleague. So, Jason Statham, you're a liar. You're not fooling anyone, even with your acting and your American accent that you never do. Just stop pretending you're an actor. Just give up. You've never made a good film. Well, you've been in good films, but you've never been any good in them. Just I, I like Jason, I like Jason Statham, but if you want to, if you want to, if you want to enjoy a Jason Statham film, watch Spy with Melissa McCarthy. He's very funny in that, and it's quite a fun film. He's funny when he just plays Jason Statham, but he, yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah. That's that. Look, that's what Jason Statham is for. He's there to play Jason Statham. They they do the classic thing in this movie, like they used to do in John Claude Van Damme movies. They have a line of dialogue early on that explains why he doesn't have an American accent. They say he's born in the UK and came here when he was 24. And it's like, we don't care. They used to come up with these like like little backgrounds to why Jean-Claude Van Damme's in an American film, even though he's obviously Belgian. We don't care. Nobody cares. It's 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 the state. Just let him do what he's doing. I'm, I'm sorry. Have you watched The Meg? No. Yeah. That'll change your opinion on Jason Statham pretty <laughs> fucking quickly. <laughs> yeah, I'll um, maybe we should do that as maybe we could do a special remake hate watch. Don't make me watch it again. I have in mind a remake hate watch where we take all the films that are a a, a rip off of Jaws and do them as one remake hate watch. Um, but that, that's that's for another day. How would you redo Jaws: The Revenge? <laughs> Just don't do it. <laughs> Put it in a bin and set it on fire. Yeah. But anyway, that's the remake. Hey, watch. I was very interested with this because I, I was talking to you before the podcast. I sent you a couple of ideas for films that we could do as our remake restoration, where we say, "What about a film that could be remade differently and better?" And in this, I, I came up with a couple of films, and they were all sort of in the action kind of blockbuster genre because what we say, "Let's blow away the cobwebs in January, make it all action films." And I was quite intrigued by the fact that you chose this movie because I think this is a hard one to remake. Your 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 choice for this was Assassin's Creed as a remake restoration. So why did you want to jump on Assassin's Creed uh, for a remake restoration? So, um, I don't like the fact that video games have now got the reputation that they are impossible to make into films or ad, like adapt for the the TV TV screens. Now I'm not saying that video game films are actually good because they're not, they're shit. Like, other than The Witcher, which was good, and apparently The Last of Us. I've never played the games because I don't have that console. Um, I'm looking to see if I can maybe borrow someone's PlayStation. But The Last of Us TV show is getting unbelievable reviews at the moment. Only one episode, right enough. Yeah. But it, it does seem that when you say video games and movies in the same sentence, everyone kind of goes... And they're right that, I mean, it started with Bob Hoskins as Mario. <laughs> and then yeah. the Mortal Kombat film was shit. The Street Fighter film was shit. Um, well, Resident Evil films, they're shit. Yeah. Um, and Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed is one of my favourite franchises. Remember in 2009 when you got me Assassin's Creed 2? Mm-hmm. And you didn't see me for about five days. <laughs> yeah. Because... 
it was set in Renaissance Italy. And that's the best thing about the Assassin's Creed franchise is that they pick these amazing settings and they kind of intertwine real-life characters like Leonardo da Vinci and how they have relations with a fictional character. Mm-hmm. So what I didn't like is that they just they were like, oh yeah, we'll just we'll set it in Spain. No. You, they should have picked a source material like one of the games and it should have been... The, Assassin's Creed 1 set in... Um, the Crusades, and it's a bit shit. They should have gone for Assassin's Creed 2 because it's set in Renaissance Italy and it's one of the best video games ever made, and they should have yeah. just gone from there. And they could have cast someone to play the main character. And the, st- the premise of Assassin's Creed is that you're tapping into your ancestors' memories, so it's quite yeah. hard to find someone that's going to play a modern-day American but then also do an effective um, Florence accent from the 1400s. But they should have gone from there and used the source material that they ever that they already had as opposed to create a, a mm. story like from scratch. And this isn't just Assassin's Creed in general. I think the reason that they should have done a better job of it is that they can so they can change the reput- reputation of making video game films because video games have got these really rich stories but I think the problem is is that they, they lend themselves much better to TV shows so for example I'm playing The Witcher 3 again at the moment and it's mm-hmm. it's I must have pumped about I could probably check the statistics for this game for how many hours I've pumped into this game and you know it they they try and fit it into a two two and a half hour film when it takes you a hundred hours to complete it mm. do you know what I mean so it's yeah. For me, it's quite annoying when they try and make it into a into a film, and then they don't give it, you know, enough of a enough of a telling. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's that's the problem. The the that's probably why it's easier to make it into a TV show because you can really flesh it out. Yeah, I mean, funny enough, I mean, to, for, for a bit of background, this is uh, starring Michael Fassbender and directed by Justin Kurzel, exactly like Macbeth, which was the last remote restoration we did. So Justin Kurzel's not emerging with much credit from this. That's two films in a row where it's like, no, you fuck this up, mate. We're going to have to redo this. Um, Fassbender in the main role. Would you, would you have been? Would you have been all right with that if they'd done everything else right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how Fassbender could do an Italian accent, but yeah, they tried to get him to do a Spanish one, didn't they? Yeah, and they sort of had to sort of tan him up a little bit, and uh, yeah, it feels a bit racist. Yeah, and so I mean, I I'm not as familiar with Assassin's Creed as you are, but I am I am aware that they introduced a completely different character instead of the character that is this, the, the center of the of the of the video games. I, I, that that seemed unnecessary. Um, I was vaguely aware that Assassin's Creed Two was much better than Assassin's Creed One, and everything I know about Assassin's Creed tends to be about like the, the Renaissance Italy stuff, which you're right is would be a much more interesting setting. I also thought they spent far too much time on the storyline that's not with the assassin stuff. It's not in Renaissance Italy. It's poncing around in the facility, having an argument over whether they should be doing what they're doing, and it's like. Guys, that's not what anyone is here to watch. And you've only got two hours to, to get a, a lot of material across. Why uh, Marion Cotillard and her dad having another argument about the ethics of what they're doing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, first question is, you've just described some unsuccessful video games. And obviously a lot of those films are unsuccessful because they're done with very poor standard. Uwe Bolds done some very poor video um, game films because he's a shit director. Um, but... The examples that you've given of successful video game adaptations are TV shows. Now, are you saying Assassin's Creed could have been a film, or are you saying they should try it as a TV show? I think 
the the earlier games, yes. So Assassin's Creed Two is good because there's a lot of padding in the story, but essentially the story is is that um, there's a young man called Ezio Auditore da Firenze, and he basically goes down to hunt down the Templars, who mm. are descended from the the Crusades themselves, and they're the baddies. Yeah, and basically they, if you've not played the game, spoiler, but they they murder his dad and two brothers. And he finds out that his dad was a member of the Assassins, so he basically hones his skills, refines them, and um, hunts down every member of the Templar Order in um, Italy. Yeah. And you could do that in two and a half hours, I think. Yeah. I think you could. He meets Leonardo da Vinci, who helps him make his hidden blade. You could have that kind of nice cameo. And, yeah, you can you can lose a lot of the stuff that's kind of like, it's fun to play when you're playing it, but you don't actually need it when you're telling the story. Um, the problem is, is when you get to the the newer games, they've just made games absolutely massive. So yeah. the Assassin's Creed Odyssey was the one set in ancient Greece. I've just I've got my statistics up here for you. How long I've spent on it? I've spent seven days, fifteen hours, and forty two minutes on that one game. Yeah. So the, it would get harder as they they went on. But once once you've set up a franchise, no one is saying you have to do one game in one movie. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. They did three games based on. Just Ezio, yeah. and they could have. There's one set just wholly in the first yeah. one. You're set in yeah. Florence, Venice, and there's a little bit in um, Rome, and then mm. the second one's entirely in Rome, and then the fourth one's in Constantinople. So, you know, you don't have to just limit yourself to one film. But if you're if you're just going to make one Assassin's Creed film, which I think is what they were going to do from the beginning, I don't mm. know um, what they were planning with it, but yeah. The... Yeah, I mean, on on a technical level, I mean, I've look, I've seen you play Assassin's Creed. I haven't played it myself, and that, but that that's kind of not neither here nor there really, because you can't make an Assassin's Creed game just for people who play Assassin's Creed, because that that doesn't generate enough um, revenue. The people who play Assassin's Creed can make it a billion dollar f- video game, but for a film, you need a lot more people to watch it as well. So it's got to be true to the core audience, but it's got to work as a movie as well. So it's got to work for me as well. Um, and having seen the the film of Assassin's Creed, they did. They've got one or two technical challenges because they've got to. Someone's got to come up with a visual look for the film that, that a is good to watch, but b doesn't fall down the. This looks a bit too much like the Matrix type trap. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because there is a little bit of slow motion time, but I think it. First of all, it requires a, a better director than Justin Kurzel, who has now done two films where the, where the action side of it was just far too flat. Mm. Um, and it did. It, it just looked dusty. It looked. It looked a bit boring. The, the kind of the kind of pattern of kind of the the, the like uh, dusty sunset color that they did to everything set in Spain it just looked really boring and not very good and that whole thing is you've got to find a way to kind of capture that the visual style of Assassin's Creed the the most famous thing that I've seen you do is the leap of faith where, where the, the the assassin swan dives off the building but somehow manages to land safely on the ground and the slow motion fight you've got to avoid being don't do the Prince of Persia thing. Don't do the Matrix thing. You've got to come up with your own visual style for the movie. If you do that, it's really going to be about concisely telling the story in two hours. And I think the only way to do that is to break it up. Is to say that we'll do, as you say, you said Assassin's Creed 2 had a relatively self-contained story. But really, you've got to set it up as saying, look, you just need to be, you just need to be franchise episode, don't you? It's like this movie has to have a beginning, a middle end of its own, but it needs to be part of an overall arc. 
which is I'm sort of leaning towards maybe TV would be easier, but I like I like films. So if they could do it as a film, you just need to find a way to get a good story across in two and a bit hours and a good visual style for the movie. Yeah, I mean that's what it all, that's what it all boils down to. If you look at most of the Assassin's Creed games, is that what they're basically following the same format and it's getting a bit boring now, where you have to kill about 50 members of this secret order. It was the same for the one in Ancient Greece and it was the same for the one that they just did set in um, like medieval, like, well, England during mm-hmm. the Viking period. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could, you don't have to show every single character. You can try and show the plot twists and the turns through that way. But yeah, yeah. it does, uh, it would take someone maybe being bold enough to say we're doing two films, doing a two-parter, mm-hmm. both two hours long and just see where they go with that. Mm-hmm. But I think Maybe the remake hate watch for this is just kind of like a maybe like maybe they need to just stop doing films and just commit to TV series just because the the source material is that extensive and that deep that you I I'm I'm leaning towards TV for this. I think video games. I think a lot of the a lot of the bad rap video games have got is that like you say the 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 the, the, the scope of them is too much for a movie. Yeah, and, and, and I'm leaning towards long form TV as being a better home for a video game adaptation. Well, interestingly enough, the only video games they should really make into films, and they haven't done it yet, is Call of Duty. Because when the new Call of Duty comes out, I can complete the story in that in, like, a few hours. And the rest is online gameplay, isn't it? So they could easily... And that would fucking kill at the box office. Yeah. That would make a load of money. So I think it's kind of choosing your battles, but I think in general, if you're going to pick, you know, a video game that has got, you know, three video games and umpteen books behind it, or... The Assassin's Creed franchise, which must have must be on their their twelfth game now or something mm. ridiculous, you know they have to kind of decide what they're going to actually do and mm. make sure they're doing it properly. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a tricky. It's a tricky balance, isn't it? Mm. Okay, well that's our remake. Hey, watching our remake restoration for this uh, for this month. I hope you enjoyed it. Food for thought, mm. and um, we're now we're we're now wrapping up real one. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now. We hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation, which this month brings you the second annual Double Reel Awards for Excellence and Otherwise in the films of 2022. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. For episode 33, we recount the famous story of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Paul Verhoeven's lost... I'm going to say that again because I don't know how to pronounce that. I thought we were going to get through the whole thing in one time. I mean, you fucking threw a curveball with Verhoeven. (laughs)